0: In the oh,
1: <laughs> hey, okay. afternoon, for our guest via the long lines, is Eve Arden of Armas Brooks. Hi, are you there?
2: Hi, Don. Yes, I am. How are you? Fine,
1: thank you. How are things out on the West Coast? Oh, beautiful.
2: Gorgeous today.
1: You. Have a voice that is enduring. I don't know whether I should start off by saying that, but uh, well, it better be. <laughs> is it a? It's one of the two or three voices that you hear, and instantly you know who it is. Has that been a, a blessing or what? Well, it's
2: been kind of astonishing to me because if I get in an elevator and say three, <laughs> six people turn around. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always embarrassed because it's. A day when I would like not to be caught, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened? What do you do in, in a situation like? I don't know if anybody can identify with that who has not been in it. What do you do I, when?
2: I guess not. I'm very used to it now because it's lasted since our Miss Brooks, you know. Well, even before that, pictures I did, people identified my voice immediately
3: da da
4: da
5: da 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 not 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 I My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, it's back to school with radio's teachers' pets, class clowns, and perhaps the most iconic miss in radio history. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening theme song is Dion DiMucci's first charting single with the Belmonts. It's called I Wonder Why, and was released by Laurie Records in April of 1958. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news, like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series. It will be set in 1830s New York City, and is in development. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com thewallbreakers.
6: If I had learned anything about programming and
7: personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally.
5: When the Columbia Workshop first took to the air on Saturday, July 18, 1936, at 8 p.m., network radio was 10 years old. The industry had spent the previous generation grappling with whether radio would be a commercial, government, or public entity, with what should air, and by discussing what would happen to wireless telegraphy that radio was born from. Radio was still a crude entertainment medium, Band shows and vaudeville-style comedy dominated the dial. The Major Bow's Amateur Hour was radio's highest-rated show, and NBC's Dual Red and Blue Networks aired eight of the country's top ten programs. On the evening of the Columbia Workshop's premiere, New York City's three other big stations—WEAF, WJZ, and WOR—ran orchestral remotes opposite the debut. But CBS's 35-year-old head was William S. Paley, and he was a man who believed that well-written programming would come to lead American entertainment. He felt that if radio was to become a legitimate art form, it would have to develop its own actors, writers, directors, and musicians.
6: The first thing I had to do when I got over here was to change the program schedule altogether. We were getting no place with what we had, and start to build an organization, which, funnily enough, was not very easy to do. Uh, My friends, for instance, in Philadelphia, thought I was crazy. They thought this radio was a sort of a passing fancy. And uh, when I got to New York, I had difficulty hiring people. I didn't sit down and say, uh, this isn't my program for radio as to what I think it ought to become. But I got educated to its potentials, and little by little started to evolve a philosophy and a plan. In those days, nobody uh, was making radio sets. There were no brand names. If you wanted one, you had to get a hold of a technician who knew how to put one together. That's what I did, and I bought my first crystal set. And then would sit around until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning trying to get KDKA in Pittsburgh or... And there was a station in Kansas City. I think I got once or twice, which is very exciting. But even before I got into it as a business, I saw it as a bit of magic, as a medium that was able, I thought, at some future time to communicate with all the people in the country and all the people in the world. And what a fantastic thing this was.
5: The Columbia Workshop was responsible for furthering the careers of people like Irving Reese, Betsy Toothill, Orson Wells. William N. Robeson, Minerva Pius, Burgess Meredith, William Spear, Charles Vanda, Robert Trout, Bernard Herman, Erwin Shaw, and Norman Corwin.
8: The name billing was tremendous. From there on, it became Mm -hmm. the following
9: series was 26 by Corwin, and Mm -hmm. then there was Columbia Presents Corwin, and there were two of those.
10: We are here on the Central Plaza. We are well off to the eastward edge. There's a kind of terrace over the crowd here. It is precisely 4 minutes to 12. The crowd is enormous. There might be 10,000. There might be more. The whole square is faces, opposite over the ropes of the mountain.
5: Perhaps the most famous program the workshop ever produced was Archibald MacLeish's Fall of the City, originally broadcast from the 7th Regiment Armory in New York on April eleventh, 1937. It was an allegory on the rise of fascism. William N. Robeson remembered the night. The great period of radio was from the
11: time when I, very fortuitously and didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York, from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war, was only seven years, Mm -hmm. the golden age of radio. At this time, we were trying to find out how to do it. Mm -hmm. We were learning skills. We were sharpening and honing our abilities. If you saw, good heavens predating the War of the Worlds by a year. When Irving Reese did The Fall of the City in 37, Spring of 37, The Fall of the City by Archibald McLeish, a first play with one of America's outstanding poets, a man who was so impressed by the medium of radio that he submitted to Irving Reese in the Columbia Workshop a verse play for radio. And who directed that? Irving Reese with all of the directorial staff of CBS assisting him. Yeah, that was a mammoth Earl production. Earl McGill, Brewster Morgan, myself, Bill Spear, all assisted.
12: First the waters rose with no wind. Listen,
8: that is she. She's
13: speaking.
12: Then the stones of the temple kindled without flame or tinder of maize leaves.
14: They see her beyond us. A crowd sees her.
12: Then there were cries in the night haze, words in a once-heard tongue. The air rustling above us as at dawn with herons. Now it is I who must bring fear. I who am four days dead. The tears still unshed for me, all of them. I for whom a child still calls at nightfall. Death is young in me to fear. My dress is kept still in the press in my bedchamber. No one has broken the dish of the dead woman. Nevertheless, I must speak painfully. I am to stand here in the sun and speak. The city of masterless men will take a master. There will be shouting men, blood after.
11: Orson Welles' is narrator, Burgess Meredith, is the chief orator, names that we conjure with now, we're just kids then. Yeah, Orson Welles was probably about 22, 23, 23 at the time. Uh, 22 and 37, 23 at the time. Of the other show. And didn't you uh, use a
8: big mammoth studio or you rented a, a National Guard Hall or something to get special uh, 7th effects? 7th
11: Regiment Armory on Park Avenue. Uh, it
8: was done live, the whole show. Yeah, it was done live,
11: know? but it was remote from the armory.
8: And that was to get the effect of the crowd? Or what Irving
11: wanted. wanted to get was an outdoor perspective, dead air, outdoor, no reverb. He put his cast in this vast armory, my responsibility was crowd direction. We had a crowd of 150 people. The crowd was a character in the play, as the Greeks wrote for the chorus. Mm-hmm. They had no words, but they had reactions. And I was the cheerleader for the crowd. <laughs> to limit that, to control a small orchestra, but with very piercing, primitive instruments. I mean, with that, woodwinds and tambours and so on to control that, to control the narrator. Wells worked in an isolation booth, which were quite new in those days. All of this to give an impression of great space without reverberation. Before the
10: murders of the famous kings, before imperial cities burned and fell, the dead were said to show themselves and speak. When dead men came, disaster came. Presentiments that let the living on their beds sleep on... Woke dead men out of death and gave them voices.
15: Masterless men, when shall The episode was
5: selected by the New York Times as the outstanding broadcast of 1937. And Time Magazine noted that it proved radio was science's gift to poetry and poetic drama. Not all episodes were so heavy. On Thursday, September 21st, 1939, the workshop took to the air with a light drama entitled Now It's Summer.
16: 9 o'clock the correct time, WJSV, Washington. Does
17: Hollywood have a heart? The answer to that question will be broadcast over the Columbia Broadcasting System every Sunday night at 7.30 o'clock on the Screen Gill Theater. This program returns to the air September 24th. The greatest of Hollywood stars broadcast, but they receive no pay for their work. Instead, the money, $10,000 each week, goes into the fun to build a
16: home for the screen industry's needy. Be sure to tune in every Sunday night. Tonight, the Columbia Workshop presents the fifth specially commissioned work for the current workshop festival. Now it's summer. A comedy by the young American author and playwright Arthur Cober. Earl McGill is the director. Mm-hmm. is a high school classroom in elementary physics. Charles Trow has taught physics for over 20 years, and what he says he has said again and again.
18: Yes, sir. Right.
16: Now,
19: Sweeney.
18: Gee whiz, Mr. Trow, I'm supposed to see Mr. Considine after school. He'll give me holy heck if I don't see him. Uh,
19: here's a sheet of paper. Make out a note to Mr. Considine saying I detained you and I'll sign it.
18: Gee whiz, what did I do anyways? I was just sitting there. I wasn't hurting nobody.
19: Hurting nobody?
18: No, sir. I wasn't hurting nobody.
19: Hurting nobody?
18: Hurting anybody. Better. Ah, gee whiz, why are you always picking on me? What you got against me anyhow?
19: Every time I'm in the midst of an experiment or the explanation of some rule, you're either whispering to your neighbor or you're off stargazing somewhere. Now, I can't have discipline in my class if you're going to set a bad example, can
18: I? But I wasn't whispering, Mr. Trow. Today I was doing nothing. That's it,
19: Sweeney. You were doing nothing when you were supposed to be listening.
18: I was listening. Don't
19: contradict me. You were daydreaming. You had your eyes closed.
18: That's the way I listen sometimes. No kidding, I really... Sweeney,
19: this has happened too often to be an accident. I'm afraid I shall have to report you to Dr. Curtis. You wouldn't want me to do that, would you?
18: No, sir.
19: Well, <clears throat> what's your average mark, Sweeney?
18: About 70.
19: 70? Hmm. Do any of your other teachers find fault with you? No, sir.
18: Nobody else picks on me. You're the only... Why does po-
19: Mr. Considine want to see you?
18: He's coaching the baseball team. I'm supposed to be in the park Keep right now. Keep your seat,
19: please, please. I'm not letting you go until we get to the bottom of this. Now, what is it, Sweeney? Come on. Out with it.
18: Well, I don't know. Well, there's
19: no need to be embarrassed. This is just between you and me. Well, speak up.
18: I've got nothing to speak up.
19: Are my uh, problems too complex? Huh? I mean, are they too hard?
18: Uh, they're okay, I guess. I
19: well, do no. Perhaps I don't make myself clear. Perhaps if I expressed myself a little more, uh, shall we say, more uh, simply, you'd understand. Now, is that it?
18: Well, I don't know.
19: Sweeney, you must know what's bothering you.
18: I got nothing bothering me.
19: Last week, it was Turner I had to report. The week before, it was Hellman. Now, I don't want to go to Dr. Curtis again. Sweeney, there's an old adage. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now, you've often heard of that, haven't you?
18: I don't know.
19: Of course you have. Everybody has. Now, there is something obviously wrong with you. I'd like to help you, but that requires your cooperation. In other words, let us say that I'm the doctor and you are the patient, so to speak. Now, in order to affect it, there you go again.
18: What did I do now?
19: Even when I try to help you, you won't listen. You were staring out of the window, wearing that sickish grin on your face. Sweeney, I don't know what to do. I was
18: listening, Mr. Trow. You said you was a doctor.
19: Your constant wool gathering is becoming a source of extreme irritation. You're... You're really not a bad boy. If only you wouldn't allow your mind to wander off the way it
18: does. No, sir. No more. Gee, I hope Mr. Constantine. Now, one I... moment,
19: please. Please, I'm not quite through with you.
18: Oh, gee. Now,
19: stop your sulking. I assure you, it's no fun for me to stay here after school but I must do something about you, if only as an example to the other unruly pupils. You... You don't like physics, do you? Isn't, isn't that why you're so restless? Go on, you can tell me. I won't punish you.
18: Oh, who wants to be an electrician anyhow? What well, do I care about that electric light and power stuff?
19: Well, what would you rather do?
18: Play baseball with the rest of the guys. That's what I was thinking when I was looking out of the window. I was thinking, gee whiz, now it's summer. Look at me, cooped up. Here while the gang is in the park having fun. I was thinking, boy, it must be nice out there in the park. It's summer now. But, Sweeney, we can't
19: go about doing whatever we like. It would be a very strange world if we did. There are certain things which have to be done whether we like to do them or not. They make for routine and order. Now, if we were to neglect these duties, we'd have chaos and confusion. There are certain tasks that I have to perform whether I want to or not. I, too, would like to be out in the fresh air. There's also a park a few blocks from the boarding house in which I live. I haven't been there in... Oh, let me see now. Uh, well... Uh, never mind. The fact is that I frequently hear some of my neighbors arranging to go there. There are times when I'm tempted to go along. But do I leave my work? Do I take time off? Do I neglect my duties? The answer, Sweeney, is emphatically no, I do not. Even though it is summer and there is a park nearby. Routine and order, Sweeney, are the great secret of life. Now, learn the simple art of self-discipline. For example, make a point of arriving at your classes promptly. Devote all your thought and energy to the subject in hand. Then, when your classes are over, you can relax. Play your baseball in the park. Have your good time. Happy in the knowledge that you've done your... Sweeney, I give up. You're incorrigible. Oh.
18: What's the matter? What did I do now? Come
19: along, come along. I'll take you to Dr. Curtis. Perhaps he can drill some sense into him.
18: Gee whiz, I'm always doing something wrong. Even when I sit nice and quiet, that's wrong.
19: Nothing, nothing I say seems to penetrate. Everything goes into one ear and out the very same ear.
18: Honest, Mr. Trow, I was paying attention. You were busy. Was...
19: You were busy scribbling away while I was talking. Sweeney, does anything ever stir in that cranium of yours? Yes, sir. Really? How surprising. What were you writing?
18: Oh, it's nothing.
19: Let me see it.
18: It's just a plain piece of paper, that's all.
19: Come on, let me have it. I'm curious to see what you think of it, if you think at all, while I'm talking. Well?
18: It's just some scribbling, Mr. Trow. It ain't got no sense to it.
19: No, I don't doubt that for a moment. I'm waiting, Sweeney.
18: Oh, gee.
19: Open your fist, please. Now, let me see what... Put... What made you write this?
18: I don't know.
19: Old Donald Duck. Mr. Trow, old Donald Duck. Old Donald Duck?
18: I didn't make it up, Mr. Trow. Honest, I didn't. The rest of the fellows they all you got You mean to that g- the
19: other pupils also call me this? Do they, Sweeney? I want to know so I can be... Well, uh, prepared, so to speak. Do they?
18: It's kind of like a nickname. You'll know, like Red and Shorty and...
19: Old Donald Duck. Is that right?
18: Yes,
5: sir. This broadcast was recorded by the CBS affiliate WJSV in Washington, D.C.
19: Please tell me.
5: The station recorded its entire 19-hour broadcast day. Well? It was for a collaboration with the National Archives.
18: You always go like this. Now then, quack, 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 so to speak. Exactly. Quack, 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 That's quack,
5: enough. quack. I don't want to hear any more. It was also the first time it, that such a comprehensive undertaking had been yes, done. Yes,
19: I know, I know. All right, Sweeney. I asked you and you told me. That's what I was scribbling.
18: I was thinking, she whiz, now it's summer. There's the park and I'm cooped up while old Donald's Ducky keeps right on quacking. Quack, 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 I'd quack. I've had
19: enough of that. Get out of here. Get out at once before I.
18: Yes, sir, yes, sir. See, with all I did was tell you what you asked me.
19: Stop! Old Donald Duck, Mr. Trow, you are Old Donald Duck. Quack, quack, quack! So to speak. Quack,
4: quack, quack,
5: quack! The professor goes to the park to clear his head. There he meets the female lead, played by Anne Shepard. Miss Shepard was born Scheindel Kalish. To a Yiddish theater producer, no, so Miss Kalish was the winner of the drama award from the Jewish People's Institute of Chicago in 1932.
19: You know, I didn't mean to drive them away, really, I, I didn't. I'll no, let it bother you, Pop. You know, I couldn't help. Listening. You get gray hair if you worry. You, I thought they were both very sweet,
20: yeah,
19: and then, sweet. Yes, and and so uh, young. I,
20: oh,
19: I'm really sorry I frightened them away.
20: Look, Pop. I wouldn't worry none about those birds if I was you. You get used to things like that around here if you just hang around for an hour or so.
19: Oh, you seem to know this part.
20: Know it. I memorized it. Mention any leaf, I'll tell you where it is. What else I gotta do? Sit in my two-by-four and get a nice steam bath when I can sit out here in the open. Look at it. Trees and flowers and lots of nice green grass. I like green for a color.
19: Uh, this is here and has been all these years.
20: What I'd be doing at home right now is sitting and staring at the walls and thinking, what good am I? Where do I come in anyway? Well, in the park, I don't know. People go past you, some happy, some sad. You start wondering about them. Maybe they got their trouble. Maybe they ain't even got a two-by-four with walls to stare at. And I don't feel so bad. Now, why should somebody else's troubles pep me up? I don't know why. Still, it does
21: Oh, no, no
19: Mr. Trowell. Quack, quack, quack.
20: quack yeah, The man who invented parks ought to get a medal, don't you think so?
19: You? Hmm? Oh, I uh, beg your pardon?
20: I was talking about the park. Oh. <laughs> and, uh would you
19: believe it? This is my first visit here. Yeah,
4: and I'm, you oh, I'm not telling you. don't no, 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 I not You, distance, yeah. you want the <laughs>
5: The next day, Polish General Władysław Langer surrendered the city of Lwów to Soviet and Nazi forces. Within three hours, the Soviets broke the terms of surrender. Most of the Polish army officers were murdered by secret police in 1940.
16: network takes pleasure in bringing you
0: Suspense,
16: Suspense, stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement, a new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week from the pick of new material, From the pages of best selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you. suspense. Tonight's presentation is one of the finest of the contemporary stories of mystery and terror. John Dixon Carr's famous novel, The Burning Court.
5: Suspense premiered on CBS at 9.30 p.m. on June 17, 1942. During its 20 years on the air, the show offered listeners the best in high-anxiety drama. The first six episodes were under the supervision of Charles Vanda. By late July... The series was turned over to William Spear.
22: Well, Bill, when did uh, Suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a -A, a very wonderful producer and and great old friend, in California. And it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus, and up until then they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find, but we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a, a testing ground, a pilot, it would be called today, a ground, for new shows, one of which was suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern. Several shows were sold and, and went on into uh, getting well-known in radio, some others fell by the wayside.
5: Spear proved to be an incredible director. Soon, a talented crew of radio actors with Broadway cachet were guest-starring. In January of 1943, production of Suspense moved with Spear to Hollywood. Agnes Moorhead first appeared in The Diary of Sophronia Winters on April 27, 1943. And four weeks later, in Lucille Fletcher's Sorry, Wrong Number.
23: I started to read it and it got so... Uh, nerve-wracking that I thought that no one will listen to this, you know, because it just unnerves um, you as you go
2: along. Hurry! Hurry! Oh, I
4: don't know what to do! I don't know what to do! I don't know what to do! I don't know what to do!
5: Famed character actor Hans Conried played the killer.
16: Oh, what a lovely show. Aggie Morehead, uh, we always felt, was one of the very finest actresses in the English language. And, uh, Aggie, as always, was magnificent. It, of course, was a tremendous tour de force for her. Police Department, Sergeant
10: Martin speaking. Police Department? Oh, I'm sorry. I must have got the wrong number. Don't worry. Everything's okay.
16: I primarily was a Californian, yes. euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. <laughs> uh, indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio, were primarily of a documentary sense and very often a more literate sense and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center uh, because the, uh, the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats.
4: That's interesting. That's
16: exactly the reason for it, and the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist uh, were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began at 35, uh, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their their glamour, and since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, uh, there was a, a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our motion movie star, step into your living room, and the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors. Now the movie star was named and starred, he was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday, able actors who played part after part after part.
5: Late in the year, Roma Wine signed on as sponsor. And beginning on December 2nd, the show moved to Thursdays at 8 p.m. Hollywood's best loved working on suspense. In fact, the first Roma show starred Cary Grant, who said, If I ever do any more radio work... I want to do it on suspense, where I get a good chance to act. Oh,
24: David!
23: She's out there! Something hit the back of the car. It's her.
24: Is the door locked on your side? Yes,
23: yes. Well, what, what if she breaks the windows? She's got a cleaver.
24: In that flash of lightning, I saw somebody. Is it the
23: crazy woman?
24: I can't tell. She's lying on the road.
23: Can you see her? Is she still there?
24: Too dark to see. Have to wait for the lightning.
3: I saw her. She's getting up now. She'll kill
18: us. She'll kill us.
5: The fifth Roma episode, broadcast on December 30th, 1943, was called Finishing School. Written by British crime writer, Ethelina White. It starred Margot, Elsa Lanchester, and Janet Beecher.
16: Roma Wines presents
3: Suspense.
25: Roma Wines, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Your health, senor. Roma Wines toast the world. The wine for your table is Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment
3: throughout the world. This is the Man in Black, here for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, to introduce this weekly half-hour of Suspense. Tonight in Hollywood, Roma Wines bring you a distinguished all-feminine cast of stars headed by Margot, Miss Elsa Lanchester, and Miss Janet Beecher. The suspense play which stars these ladies, and which is produced and directed by William Spear, is called Finishing School. Despite the absence of male participants in Ethel Lena White's story, we can promise you there is nothing dainty about the proceedings. And so with finishing school and with the performances, in the order of their appearance of Margot as Caroline Watts, of Janet Beecher as Melody, and of Elsa Lanchester as Dean Sterling, Robo Wines again hope to keep you in... Suspense!
26: vividly now, just as I saw them the very first time. Those high stone ivy draped walls of Miss Nash's school for girls. And the first person who greeted me, that amiable soul, Miss Melody. I can see her too. It was she, in fact, who showed me into my new room and who stood there watching me a moment, smiling.
27: This is your first teaching job, isn't it? <laughs> How did you know? Well, if you've been around nothing but teachers for 30 years, you'd know too. Let me guess now. Your subject is either French or... No, no, it's sports. On the nose.
26: What's your subject, Miss Melody? Mine.
27: Come in.
12: Caroline What? Yes? I'm Miss Sterling, the dean.
26: Welcome to the Nash School. Oh, how do you do, Miss Sterling? I've been looking forward to meeting you.
12: Thank you. I wanted you to know about the general faculty meeting in my office at three this afternoon. I'll see you then. At three o'clock. Oh, uh, yes. Malladay. Yes, Sterling? Miss Nash is a little concerned about the new student. You might just check up on supplies for the third floor. It's already
27: taken care of. Oh, very well. I should answer your question, Miss Watt. You see, my subject is housekeeping. Oh, I, I didn't know. I just supposed that you were one of the teachers. I was, up until a year ago, when Miss Penelope passed away. Oh, yes, that was Miss Nash's sister. Oh, no changes like that are inevitable, I suppose. As inevitable as, well, that ugly rumor ugly the About Miss Penelope's death. But I... I hadn't heard any rumor or anything about her death. Oh, then I'm sorry, Miss Watts. I... I assumed you were that familiar with the school. What was the rumor, Miss Melody? Oh, it was nothing really, not even worth repeating. Well, I imagine I Wait, guess... Miss Melody. Look, I'll, I'll hear about it sooner or later. Well, it, it was just a silly, stupid tale. But somehow it got around that Miss Nash's sister had been frightened to death. This,
3: then, was Caroline Watt's introduction to the Nash Institution a place which future events proved to be with a vengeance a finishing school.
5: The reason stars wanted to work on suspense? William Spear, who cast performers in eight typical roles.
22: I was very proud of that suspense was able to corral the really distinguished actors from both sides of the country. Uh, and While it was in Hollywood, we had people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and everyone, I can't think of hardly anyone of uh, note very few anyway who were not a part of it, I never showed anyone in my life, I have never given a script to anyone for approval, I don't believe in it they would do it because they were able to play things that they couldn't play any other way, Jimmy Stewart would be a, a murderer, or Jack Benny mm-hmm. a murderer, or Edward G. Robinson would be totally innocent, Boris Karloff would turn out to be completely wronged or Peter Laurie. And there was, it wasn't, this was not always true, but there was the chance always for that variation in their lives which hadn't existed before. In
3: finishing school. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
26: Frightened to death. Miss Nash's sister. Well, if I had known then what I know now. I would have been able to judge with real accuracy the importance of Miss Melody's remark. But the excitement of my first classes left little room for other thoughts. A week or so later, out on the athletic field, one of my students, Flora Nash, the niece of the owner, became quite ill. I sent her to the infirmary, but within ten minutes she had returned. Miss Sterling, she said, had ordered her back. I was furious and, well, I told her I was going to have it out with that woman.
22: Miss Watts,
27: wait, I... I know it isn't my place to say this, but please, for your own sake, don't antagonize, Sterling. Oh, now, really? I tell you, I know what I'm talking about. Listen, you know Miss Melody, don't you? Of course. Miss Watts, she practically started this school with my two aunts. When Miss Penelope died, everybody thought she'd move up to take her place. But she didn't. Somehow or other, Sterling saw to it she was left with the job of housekeeper. Miss Watts, don't have any trouble with that woman. Please.
26: all right, Flora. I'll go see Miss Nash. Oh, no! Why, Flora, Miss Nash is your own aunt. But Sterling would find out. Please, you mustn't. Oh, I never heard such nonsense in all my life. Hurry straight to bed. I went to the top floor of my building and entered the small waiting room of Miss Nash's quarters. It was empty, but just opposite was the door to the private apartment, almost halfway open, and I walked over to it, ready to announce myself... Then I stopped, dead still.
12: Penelope.
26: For it was then that I heard.
12: Are you there, Mr. Penelope? We are almost in touch. Yes, I hear her now, very faint, but nearer, nearer.
26: It was an incredible
12: sight. Penelope. Seated at a
26: table, wholly unlike the Penelope. elderly but austere white haired lady I'd seen Penelope. before, was Miss Nash. Penelope. Her eyes were closed, and swaying gently, she seemed utterly transfixed as she listened to Dean Sterling's low manner.
12: We're here, Miss Penelope. We're waiting. Yes. Speak to her, Miss Nash. Speak to her now. Oh, all right.
28: Uh, can, can you hear us, Penelope? Miss Sterling says you says you have
12: predicted some tragic accident for another of our loved ones. And
26: then Sterling turned toward She's
12: me. What? What are you doing here? I
26: I'm sorry. I am sorry. I wanted to speak this with is not Miss not the Nash. time or
12: the place for that. Uh, what is it, uh, Miss What? Miss Nash, it's about your niece. I really... I'm familiar with this matter about Flora, Miss Nash. And at the moment, I don't want you to be disturbed by anything so trivial. Trivial? But I. Well, I don't have you call it trivial, Miss Sterling. Flora was ill today. Why did
26: you send her back to the field?
12: Because she was no more ill than you are. She was simply up to her old trick, playing on the sympathy of a new teacher. Come, we'll talk about this outside. No, I.
26: Miss Nash, your niece.
12: Uh, uh, Miss Sterling, she'll handle it. Miss Sterling knows best. Yes, Miss Nash. Good night. Good night. If you'll just step out here. No.
26: Miss Sterling, you evidently don't realize that Flora Nash suffers from a slight heart condition. It's entered
12: on her card. I'm sure it is because I entered it. I'm a fairly competent judge of her state of health, Miss Watts, for the simple reason that I happen to be a registered nurse. Can you say the same? Well, no, I... After this, please be assured that I don't make a practice of deliberately murdering my students, especially the niece of my employer. I'm very sorry, Miss Sterling. Very well, Miss Watts. That will be
26: all. But it wasn't all. I was bewildered, even alarmed, I suppose, at the recollection of that voice calling out, Miss Penelope. And I went to the one person that I felt must be told... For quite a while, the housekeeper said nothing. Then she motioned me to a chair.
27: You might as well know this, Miss Watts. Sterling, you see, has deluded Miss Nash into believing she can actually hear Miss Nash's sister. She then reports, relays, messages, which are supposed to come from Miss Penelope. But, Melody, I'm afraid I don't understand. My dear, these messages direct Miss Nash to delegate more and more power to Sterling. That's her grip on Miss Nash. That's the instrument she's using to get the whole school away from her. I I can't understand. Miss Melody,
26: how could she ever delude Miss Nash that way? The head of a school and intelligent... She's
27: an old, grief-stricken woman, Miss Watt. More important, she's a woman who's been thoroughly sold on Sterling's clairvoyant power. You see, Sterling's made quite a number of predictions. And always they've come true. They've come true? Because she makes them come true. Miss Watt. There's a reason why I've told you this. I have the feeling that rather soon, there'll be another prediction. And somehow, some way, it mustn't be allowed to come true. I want your help. Miss Melody, what could we do?
12: Yes. Sterling. What? Well, I'm perfectly aware that you regard me as a very ominous creature. A sort of Lady Macbeth. No doubt your special charge, Flora Nash, shares the same view. So, uh, bring her along when you come to my cottage tonight.
26: Your cottage? Yes,
12: there'll be some other girls. I'm having a little time. Well, I... I hadn't... What's the matter? Don't you want to? What? Oh, yes. Yes, of
26: course I do, Miss Sterling. I, I, I'd love to come, thanks. Roughly
5: six million people and tuned into to come suspense come to during Roma's first month of sponsorship. Over the next four seasons, the show would become a Thursday night mainstay.
17: California, the makers of old gold cigarettes present the Comedy Theater, the only radio program that brings you every week the greatest stars and the greatest comedies. Tonight's play, The Milky Way, starring Robert Walker, Jimmy Gleason, Eve Arden, and Matt Pendleton
29: My name was Eunice Quaden.
15: Quaden. Mm-hmm.
29: But I always hated the Eunice part of it. Then when I got to New York, I worked for Lee Schubert in the first Schubert-Ziegfeld Follies that mm-hmm. Billy Burke produced after Ziegfeld had died. and. Lee Schubert said, we're going to put your name up on the marquee, and we can't put quidens on there. It's too long. So that's when I came up with Arden. I was waiting to go in and see him, and he'd kind of given me a deadline on a name, and I was reading a book, and the heroine was Eve, and I had a package of Elizabeth Arden's cosmetics <laughs> in my hand and I tried it out on him and he liked it and that was it. And in this corner we have Eve Arden. I'm Ann Wesley.
30: I know my way around. Every chorus girl does. Right now I'm Gabby Sloan's girl but I'm thinking of making a change because he's so busy with his prize fighter I don't even get time to talk to a horse. <laughs> and last
7: but certainly not least we have Nat
5: <laughs> Welcome to Comedy Arden. Eve Arden was born Eunice Mary Quidens in Mill Valley, California, on April 30th, 1908. Her mother, Lucille, a Milner, soon divorced her father, Charles, and went into business for herself. Eunice was sent to a convent school in San Rafael, and later attended public high school in Mill Valley.
2: I had a great complex because I had an extremely beautiful mother who had been in the theater for just a short time. And I grew up thinking I was some kind of monster because people would say, isn't it too bad she doesn't look like her mother? i had a rather bad feeling about myself and i couldn't stand to go and sit at rushes or go to premieres you know so rather late in life i'm beginning to see these pictures occasionally on the late late show Mm. and of course now it's quite pleasant i think well that gal isn't bad at all (laughs) she looks rather
5: lovely After leaving school, she joined a stock theatre company and in 1929 made her film debut as a wise-cracking homewrecker showgirl in Song of Love. Four years later, Eunice relocated to New York City, appearing in multiple stage productions before being cast in the Ziegfeld Follies Review. It was the first time she was billed as Eve Arden. Wait a minute, now how did you get from Mill Valley, California,
29: to
0: Ziegfeld Follies? I went to San
29: Francisco first. Uh And I worked for the Henry Duffy Stock Company there, which was a marvelous kind of super stock where you rehearsed four weeks and played like eight to twelve weeks, depending on how popular the play was. It was great training. Then I joined the Bandbox Repertory Company, and there were just four of us in the company, and that meant an A lot of long parts because I played all the leads and they were divided among four people and uh, then from there I did a review at the Pasadena Playhouse and we took it into Hollywood and that's where mr. Schubert saw me and signed me for the Follies so that got me to New York
24: and uh, (laughs) speaking of children brings me of course to that awful little girl who's become such a popular feature of our program here she is again with Hanley Stafford as her father, Baby Snooks. In
5: 1936, Eve made her CBS radio debut opposite Fanny Bryce in the Zigfield Follies of the Air. Bryce played Baby Snooks and Arden played her mother. This led to teaming with Ken Murray on his Wednesday night program, sponsored by Campbell's Soups. Over the next five years, she appeared in 26 films. And on January 11, 1943, Eve Arden reprised her role as Sally Long from She Knew All the Party Answers Alliance. for the Lux Radio Stop. Theater.
24: But the ways of stocks are strange. Suddenly, without reason, the selling stops and the price begins to rise. Buy Yaki Oil. Buy Yaki Oil. Buy a thousand. Buy ten.
20: Buy
0: fifty. Buy ten thousand. Buy. Buy.
24: The firm of Bradford, Wharton, Ogle, and Willow stands to make a fortune on the deal. But Gloria, at home with Kitty... Knows only that she has been fired.
0: Then what did you say? I said, I'm
31: only trying to be helpful, Mr. Willows. And then he said, we've had enough of your help, you're fired. Then what happened?
30: I was fired. And all because of one silly little word. I don't get it. Look, it's all so simple. What is? Well, if they lost all their money being bears, why didn't they turn around and be bulls?
31: Oh, Kitty, shut up. That's what got me fired. That must be Randy. Kitty, will you see how the dinner's coming along? Okay, but I still don't.
32: Care. You and uh, hey. Lucille Ball kind of were typecast as the businesswoman kind of a role, or the, the, secretary, yeah, the secretary, the other secretary the other woman.
29: and best friend of the heroine, yeah. who There's, never got the man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's
32: a Ted Sennett wrote a book called Lunatics and Lovers about those uh, screwball comedies mm-hmm. of the thirties and the forties, and you were very evident in many of those. Oh, really? And, uh, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you were evident in the screwball comedy.
29: Oh, yes. And he
32: said that trying to describe the role that you played Mm
29: -hmm. in those
32: films, you would walk onto the screen, dispense acid like wine to the fools you were obliged to tolerate and then make a nice exit. And, you know, I think that really did kind
29: of sum up your
32: screen role. That covered
29: maybe a few of them, Uh but I never thought I was so acid. And they called me brittle, which annoyed me because I was always really the gal with the good heart that saved the heroine and patched up all her troubles and took care of everybody. But I did make a flip remark. Now, and then.
30: oh, I knew this would happen. I knew you'd fall. You put a half Nelson on me.
29: You that worked was... with Danny Kaye too on Broadway, didn't you? Yes, I went back later and mm-hmm. did. Let's face it, with Danny Kay.
33: This is the Danny Kaye Show with Eve Arden, Lionel Stander, yours truly Ken Niles, and the outstanding music of America's top band, Harry James and his Music Makers. <laughs>
5: On January 6th, 1945, Eve Arden joined CBS in a regular role opposite Danny Kaye on his new highly promoted Saturday Night CBS Radio Show. As neighbors, for
4: Your
33: Entertainment taps, Pabst Blue Ribbon 33 Fine Brews blended into one great beer presents 33 fine talents blended into one great comedian, Danny
30: Kaye. Come on, Danny. Danny Kay, will you hurry up?
34: Oh, just a minute, Evie.
30: It's always just a minute with you. Come on.
34: Oh, now, wait. I must pause to greet an old friend. Ah, greetings, old friend. I know things are pretty tough now, old pal. Yes, once you were popular in the money, but now you're broke, desolate, deserted, alone. Don't worry, old pal. You'll make a comeback someday.
30: Danny, do you have to go through that act every time you pass
34: the cigarette machine? (laughs) But, Evie, they worry me. Standing around doing nothing, I I wonder if they could put bananas in them.
30: You worry about everything but the things you should.
5: At 23, K-Star was just beginning to crest. He was a master of tongue twisters, double talk. He loved the sound and rhythm of languages and was at home with almost any dialect.
34: How many letters did I get? Think of a number. One. Bingo. Now read it. <laughs>
30: the
5: show's writers included Goodman Ace and Abe Burrows.
34: Gosh, my first fan letter. I feel like a bride. <laughs> <laughs> well,
30: brush the orange blossoms out of your eyes and read it.
34: Okay. It says, uh, big money in Belgian hairs. What? <laughs>
30: huh?
34: Put a couple of our giant Belgians in your backyard and they'll soon be paying the rent for you send for our free booklet splitting
4: hairs
34: (laughs) just what i thought evie the only people listening to me last week were rabbits
30: well it's a start oh hello lionel
19: hi lionel look what i got for you danny a whole bushel basket full of letters ain't it wonderful for me lionel
30: no kidding
19: yeah
35: this is definite evidence and testimony that the american public have taken their collective pens in hand and inscribe their felicitations and congratulations for posterity. Sick Transit Gloria DeHaven.
30: <laughs> Ooh, all this mail. Let's see what they say. Here's one from Tootsie Smith of Evansville, Indiana. Blue Ribbon Program Please send me photographs of Harry James and Ken Niles. They are my dream men. <laughs> Danny Kaye is kind of cute, too, so have him lick the envelope. <laughs> well. Uh, Say, Danny, here's one I think you better read yourself.
34: Okay, let's see it. It says, um, uh, dear Danny Kaye, I heard your show last Saturday night, and I laughed and laughed and laughed. Gee, that's well. I laugh all the time. <laughs> I guess I'll never get out of this place. <laughs> Well, Harry James! Come on in, Harry. Hello, Harry. Hello, hello, everybody. Pull up a trumpet and sit down, Harry. I was just looking over my fan mail from the first show. Say, did you get any letters, Harry? Yeah, yeah, I
7: got one, but I feel kind of silly reading it.
34: Oh, go
30: on, read it, Harry.
7: Well, okay. Dear Maestro, besides being a fine musician, you are a great personality. You have the charm of a Boyer and the appeal of a Van Johnson. Sincerely, B.G. (laughs) B.G.?
34: could that possibly be Betty Grable? Well, it ain't Benny
35: Goodman, brother.
30: <laughs> Say, Harry, here's a legitimate fan letter for you. It asks for you, the boys, and Kitty Callan to do the new Columbia-recorded arrangement of I'm Beginning to See the Light.
5: CBS initially broadcast the series on Saturday nights at 8 p.m. It was radio's lowest-rated evening, but roughly 9 million people still heard the show. In April, the show moved to Friday evenings at 10.30. Ratings dipped further. Evarden felt underutilized and left the program after June 1st, 1945. By then, her unique voice and smart delivery were in the ears of NBC producers. They needed a new co-star for Jack Haley on the Seal Test Village Store. Haley was a singer, dancer, and comedian, known for his role as the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz.
8: I was doing, uh, I believe it was Wonder Bread, no Continental, Continental Bakery, Bakery, yeah. Uh-huh.
9: I was doing that at that time. I'd worked for National Dairy. I had a
21: show for them for a couple of years. Was that Seal Test? Yes, Seal uh-huh. Test.
9: Yeah. We had quite good ratings, you know. Mm. The easiest job in the Uh world was radio. You took a piece of paper and read it for a half hour, which wasn't totally a half hour because there were commercials in Mm. between. That was the easiest. It was like stealing money.
5: (laughs) The show had reached the height of its popularity with Joan Davis as the female lead, peaking in 1945 with a rating of 21.5. When the season ended, Davis left NBC for her own comedy show on CBS. Jean Carroll was brought in for the summer, but NBC wanted someone else, a permanent co-star. On September 27, 1945, Eve Arden became that person. Jackson,
36: The Seal Test Milk and Ice Cream Divisions of National Dairy present Jack Haley in the Seal Test Village Store with manager Eve Arden, our singing star Bob Stanton, and our guest tonight Vincent Price, and starring Jack Haley.
5: With Eve Arden on board, ratings for the Seal Test Village Store dropped to 16.9, reflecting the loss of Davis who is the most popular comedian of the post-war era. There comes a
36: time in every businessman's life when he feels that he should turn to something more important. Jack Haley is no exception. He has turned to the study of music. And as we look in on the Seal Test Village store,
30: we find him telling Eve Arden all about it. So you're going to study music, hmm, Jack? Yes, I am, Eve. I'm going over to Nelson's Easy Lesson Music School and take my first lesson on the ukulele. The ukulele? Well, why a passe instrument like the ukulele? Well, because of a
10: frustration I had when I was in college. In those days, all the fellows played the ukulele except me. My
30: mother made me study the trombone. Well, what's wrong with the trombone? Well, it's not a very romantic instrument. The other guys would take their girls out in a canoe, sit opposite them, and play the ukulele.
10: I couldn't do that with a trombone.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Miss Arden was busy appearing in three high-budget films. Danny Case, the kid from Brooklyn. Barbara Stanmuck's my reputation. And Carrie Grant's night and day.
30: He used to take me canoeing on the lake and serenade me with the tuba. Serenade you with the tuba? How did it sound? I wouldn't know. Every time he hit a high note, he blew me out of the boat.
10: <laughs> I'm going over to Nelson soon to start my ukulele lessons. I want you to come along, Eve. And oh, look who just came in. Virginia
5: Martin. You know... In the fall of 1946, the Village Store's ratings dropped again to 12.3. Jack Haley left the next July, and Jack Carson arrived. Hello. Meanwhile, at CBS, head William Paley was trying to launch a new sitcom based on the misadventures of a high school English teacher.
23: You know, it's a funny
31: thing. I'm always careful about standing in a dress. But no matter how careful I am, I always get a pain in the neck teaching English, too.
5: Originally titled Meet Miss Brooks, then Our Miss Booth, an audition record was made on April 9th, 1948, with Shirley Booth cast in the lead. But Shirley Booth felt the script was weak and backed out, leaving its future up in the air. After the end of the 1947-48 season, both Eve Arden and Jack Carson left the Seal Test Village store. After years of mediocre results, her interest in radio was at a low ebb.
32: You moved from films with ease into radio. You worked with Ken Murray for a while. Yes. Jack Haley. I did
29: those things uh-huh. when I was working in the theater in New York. And then I came out on the coast with another one of those. I did a show with Danny Kay on radio. And then finally along came Miss Brooks.
1: With so much greatness
12: happening in audio fiction, it can be hard to find the best of the best. So why not have someone do the work for you? On Radio Drama Revival, our team of experts showcase the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. And then we ask the creators the questions you'd want to ask.
37: Their relationship is important to you.
12: I'm Shipper Trash, David, you can say it, it's okay.
37: (laughs) And my question to you is, can it be Keisha time? Like, what do you dream about achieving not only for your neighborhood, but for yourself?
6: Mm.
37: all day. <laughs>
22: <laughs> Maybe before you realize you'd want to ask them.
37: Do you think souls exist? I personally do. When I ask you to visualize time, what do you see? Yeah, okay. I guess I've got quite a dark sense of humour in some ways. Um, Do you feel that you think about death more often or differently than you would otherwise now that you've been playing these characters?
12: Find great new audio fiction by finding us at
13: Radiodramarevival.com. It came
2: about rather strangely. I was in New York doing some publicity for the studio. On the way back, I stopped in Chicago and stayed at the Ambassador Hotel with some friends. Having dinner one night, I was introduced to William Paley, and he asked me to dance, and he loved to dance, and so did I. So we kind of hit it off very well. And I think that was the beginning, because about a week later, I was called by CBS and asked to make a record for Armis Brooks. And I wasn't very interested in doing it. And I read the first script and I said, I really don't think that this is funny enough and that Mm. I really want to do it. And Harry Ackerman, who was the producer, said, we have two new writers we're putting on it this week and if you'll have dinner with me in another week, I think you'll find it much improved, and I did. But then I said I'm taking my children to New York for the summer, and if you'll make the 13, it was to go on as a summer replacement. Mm-hmm. If you'll make the 13 before we go, that'll be fine. D.B.S. presents Our
25: Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. <laughs> Our Miss Brooks is a schoolteacher. To be specific, she teaches English at Madison High. Connie Brooks is pretty enthusiastic about her work, too. In fact, in her own words.
30: Although teaching isn't the most profitable career in the world, you must admit the hours are appalling. But there's always my secret heartthrob, Mr. Boynton. He's the biology teacher at school. And a sweeter, more intelligent scientist never brushed off an English teacher to play footsie with a frog. But he'll come around... Even a biology teacher must sooner or later get a little biological. Meanwhile, I can dream, can't I?
25: Yes, Connie Brooks can dream. Even now, she's in the middle of the sweetest dream of them all. The one that comes right before 7 a.m.
30: Hold me closer, Mr. Boynton. There. Now kiss me. Oh... How does that make you feel? That's what it does to me,
38: too. I'll shut it off. Miss Brooks, you'll be late. Kiss me again, Mr. Boynton. Miss Brooks, you have to go to school. For this, I don't have to go to school.
30: (laughs) Oh. Oh. Good morning. Well, if it isn't my favorite landlady. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Davis. What in the world were you dreaming
38: about? Oh, nothing much. Just the school. I was giving an English lesson. Well, from the way your lips were puckered, I thought you were taking a bugle lesson. (laughs) Better get up, dear. Today's the day you're supposed to find out about that new job as head of the English department from your new principal. Oh, that's right, Mrs.
30: Davis. For three years I've been waiting for that job. Three years of scrimping and scraping to get along. Now it's all going to be different. With this raise, I'll be able to run down to Miami once in a while, and after I've had the job a while, I might even go abroad. Paris,
38: the Riviera, Biarritz in the spring, the casino at Monte Carlo. Just how much more money does this new job pay, Miss Brooks? Six dollars a month. (laughs) You better watch your step at Monte Carlo. Money goes pretty fast down there. Money goes fast anywhere. I haven't been able to catch any for years. Now hurry and get dressed, dear. I have a lovely surprise for your breakfast. Another one of your surprise recipes, Mrs. Davis? I hope it's not clam fritters again. (laughs) You see, dear. Come along.
5: Our Miss Brooks debuted in transcription on CBS. Monday, July 19th, 1948, as a summer fill-in for the Lux Radio Theater.
38: They've been setting for five days.
5: The role of Connie Brooks would come to define Eve Arden's career. But when they were
29: giving her a first name, I had just adopted a little girl and named her Connie. So I said, how about Connie Brooks? And that's Hmm. what it gave Oh,
30: please, Mrs. Davis, no. Well, just one bite. Tell the truth now. Aren't they delicious? I don't want to hurt you. The head writer and director Davis.
5: was Al Lewis. If I was
30: the goat responsible for this concoction, I would hang myself by my own beard.
2: I was if living out lie, here and a man named Larry Burns, he was assigned he was hand 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 by by to do the show hand hand out hand here as a comedy. And he got unimpeded and me, about the same time, I met Eve and talked to her, and then I did a show for them to put on in the summer, sustaining at the time. I was a writer-director. We did a few shows, and, you know, people liked it, and then we got a
30: sponsor. Yes, my Chevy's still in the shop. I had a little accident Saturday. I ran into a parked car. Oh, that's too bad. I hope you reported it to the police. I didn't have to. They were sitting in the car. Oh,
38: that's good. I'll get it. Call, Miss Brooks. Come in, Walter. Well, Walter Denton, how you've shot up since I saw you last. You saw me yesterday, Mrs. Uh, Davis. My, how time flies. (laughs) Come on, Walter, I've got to get down early. The new principal takes over today. What's his name, dear? Uh, Mr. Conklin, Osgood Conklin. Osgood Conklin? Why, I've known him for years. We went to school together. Really, Mrs. Davis? What kind of a man is he, anyway? Well, the other children used to call him Stoneface because he never laughed. Oh, fine. Well, I shouldn't say never. I did hand him a laugh one time when we were out ice skating. He was practically in hysterics. What happened? I broke my leg. (laughs) He sounds about as friendly as a subpoena.
5: <laughs> the program co-starred Jeff Chandler as Philip Boynton, the bashful biology teacher and chief object of Miss Brooks's affection. Jane Morgan played landlady Margaret Davis. Richard Crenna played student Walter Denton. And Gail Gordon, played the Madison High School principal, Osgood Conklin.
0: To be quite honest, the, the parts I did were because I was louder than anybody else in radio. I could scream louder than most people. And it doesn't take a lot of talent to be noisy and loud. But I had a good lung capacity and I could be very loud. And that's what they would the producers would cast me for we want someone loud and uh, blow hard and they said we'll get gail gordon he's louder than anybody else and so that gave me a great deal of work which isn't artistic but at least it's truthful and it kept the wolf from the door
17: look at him over there dead to the world
10: well it's getting late now where's my hat (laughs)
0: <laughs> did you ever wish to uh, play any other type of character? No, because I did that in radio. I played leading men, heavies, character people, juveniles, old men, foreigners, everything else. I No, I, I had no... Uh, I didn't miss it at all. When I got cast as a blowhard... I got more money for doing it than I did for the usual other characters. And so I was very happy to keep doing it and being cast as a blowhard. <laughs> it hurt me at all. Get
39: started. You don't want to set a bad example for your new teacher.
24: I'll show them a thing or two.
39: I'll show them.
24: Oh, shut up, Prince. Goodbye, Martha. <laughs>
5: <laughs> the show also featured Gloria McMillan, Mary Jane Croft, Gerald Moore and Maurice Marsack.
1: Do you remember when you when you uh, first met? them Mary Jane told me on the phone last night that she was on Armist Brooks.
2: yeah she was my my rival,
1: Miss Enright. Miss Enright.
2: Yeah. Who is it this time, Walter? Well, she's the Baker's daughter, Penelope. And uh, and you knew Jeff Chandler, oh, my yeah. original leading man. My daughter came here today and said, Mother, I got a cassette of, of our Miss Brooks. And she said, Jeff Chandler was on it. <laughs> so she was kind of surprised.
1: That he was on it for as long as he was.
2: Well, yes, she didn't realize that he had been the first one. Brooks,
38: You see, she doesn't think that I'm mental enough. I can't understand it. And I figured, well, you being an English teacher as well as a woman... Well, you'd know how to make her think I was brainy. You know, intelligent. I hate to trade on just my sheer animal magnetism.
34: you know what I mean?
38: <laughs> well, you are a little beastly in spots, Walter.
34: <laughs> Don't blame yourself.
5: From the beginning, teachers everywhere identified with Connie Brooks. Here finally was a comedic character shown as more than a sexless tormentor of tenth graders.
38: Miss Brooks what? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks. I guess I'm not very mental at that, but you will help me out, won't you? I'll come over to Mrs. Davis's tonight, and we'll write a letter together. What do you say? Well, I don't know, Walter. Walter, look out! That
30: car! What car? That big black touring car! Big black touring car? (laughs) It's not quite as big as it
4: was.
30: (laughs) You young idiot!
24: Why don't you watch where you... My fenders, my shining fenders lying in the gutter.
30: Walter, put the man's fenders back on.
24: Oh, gee, mister, I didn't mean You didn't mean. Why didn't you look where you were going... Well, gosh, it takes two to make an accident. A brilliant observation. But it just happens that I was only going 15
30: miles an hour. You should have been going 30. We'd have missed you by a block. Now, see here, you red-haired joyrider. It was probably your fault. My fault? Why don't you learn how to drive that hopped-up hearse of yours? Hopped-up
24: hearse? Now, listen here, young woman. I've tried to control my temper, but if you want to play rough, I can get plenty rough! Walter, I've got to run along. I'll leave you to straighten out barking boy. Barking boy? That's the second time today I've been accused of barking. Young woman, I'll have you know I do not bark. Who's your friend? Go home, Prince!
2: When I got to New York, we were out in Connecticut with our dear friends. At the end of the summer, I got a call from Frank Stanton mm-hmm. of uh, Columbia, CBS, and he said, congratulations. And I said, what for? <laughs> and he said, Miss Brooks is the number one show on the air.
21: Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: So from that moment on, but of course, by then I adored Dick Crenna and Gail Gordon and my darling Mrs. Davis and there was no question but that I would go on with it.
40: You don't know what I mean. <laughs> of course I also collect stamps.
30: Oh, that sounds exciting. There's no end to the possibilities. After the
5: summer, Colgate signed on as sponsor. The show opened its first autumn season on Sunday, September 19, 1948 with this episode Weekend at Crystal Lake. It's Principal Conklin's anniversary. Really? Yeah, notes to Osgood, basket, his yeah. wife has invited Brooks and Boynton to join their family at their cottage. Mrs. Conklin knows how Miss Brooks feels about Mr. Boynton. Cool she believes seeing a successful marriage in action will get him to propose.
30: At least this beef stew is the same as last year. In fact, that's when I think it was made.
40: <laughs> oh, this chili is pretty good. Would you pass the up, please? Oh, surely. Uh, I think the salt and pepper are over on your side, too.
30: Salt and pepper on chili?
40: Well, I like things well-seasoned. Would you pass the horseradish, too, please?
30: Here you are.
40: Oh, thank you. Now a little mustard and I'm all set.
30: For the coroner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what do you drink with your lunch, Mr. Boynton? A lit can of sterno? <laughs> uh,
40: I'm afraid I have a cast-iron stomach, Miss Brooks.
30: Really? Who helps you carry it to school? <laughs>
40: I've always liked hot dishes, Miss Miss Brooks. I think spicy things enhance a meal tremendously.
30: That goes for living, too, doesn't it, Mr. Boynton?
40: What do you mean, Miss Brooks?
30: Mr. Boynton, instead of our usual Saturday night date, how would you like to go away and spend a weekend together? (laughs) (laughs) Boynton, you've got chili all over your red tie.
40: I'm wearing a blue tie.
30: It's red now. <laughs> I didn't mean to shock you like that, Mr. Boynton. I just thought it would be nice to get away for a while, say, up to Crystal Lake.
40: Oh, but, 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 but... Check your
30: motorboat, mister. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, Mrs. Conklin has invited us up to their summer cottage because tomorrow's their anniversary and she wants us to help them celebrate.
40: Well, uh, I wouldn't want to deprive you of any fun, Miss Brooks, but...
30: Good. What time will you pick me up tomorrow?
40: (laughs) Well, uh, I guess I might as well be a good sport. I'll call for you at 10 o'clock.
30: Fine.
17: Pardon me, Miss Brooks, Mr. Boynton.
40: Oh, hello, Mr. Conklin. At ease.
17: (laughs) On your way back to class, Miss Brooks, I'd like you to stop in my office for a moment. There's something I'd like to discuss with you?
30: Certainly, Mr. Conklin. I'll be there in about 10 minutes.
40: Very well. As you were... You'd never know Mr. Conklin spent some time in the Army, would you?
30: Mr. Conklin was a major in the last war, Mr. Boynton. He served for five years.
40: Was that so? In what theater?
30: Low State. <laughs> he sold war bonds in the lobby <laughs> Of course, from the shape of his head I could have sworn he spent some time in the Pentagon building <laughs> I know what he wants to see me about
40: Or maybe it's that promotion to the head of English department you've been hoping for
30: Yes, or he might have reconsidered about giving me a couple of weeks off with pay Or maybe the raise that's due me next season Is going to be made retroactive to include the summer session or maybe he's just going to do what he always does Hit me across the back of the neck with a bag of hot stones
17: <laughs> Come in
30: You wanted to see me, Mr. Conklin? Oh, yeah,
17: yes, come in, Miss Brooks Sit down, won't you? Now, I have no desire to pry into the personal lives of any of my teachers.
30: Good for you, Mr. Conklin. I always say that a person. However,
17: would... I've, uh, I've noticed that lately you're spending quite a bit of time both in and out of school with Mr. Philip Boynton. People are beginning to talk.
30: What people, Mr. Conklin?
17: Well, members of the school board. They're still considering you as a possible new head of the English department. You know how they feel about fraternization among the faculty at Madison, Miss Brooks. And I... Well, it would be different if you were married or even engaged to Mr. Boynton.
30: But, Mr. Conklin, how can one ever get engaged if one doesn't fattenize with one or um, one more than one if necessary to find the right one?
17: (laughs) (laughs) That is your problem, Miss Brooks. Now, I'm not asking you to stop seeing Mr. Boynton completely, but I do wish you'd think twice about your public meetings. Maybe you could... uh...
30: Find a hideaway?
17: (laughs) Miss Brooks... That's not what I had in mind at all.
30: Me either, but don't knock it until you've tried it. (laughs) That is, I I wasn't going to... Uh,
17: Now, uh, my anniversary is tomorrow, and I'm going to surprise Mrs. Conklin with a little trip to Crystal Lake. We have a cottage there, you know.
30: Yes, I know.
17: And if I could feel that your conduct over the weekend was above reproach, well... I'd enjoy my little vacation that much more.
30: Oh, don't worry about Mr. Boynton and myself, Mr. Conklin. Believe me, you won't hear a thing about us.
34: (laughs) Yoo-hoo, Mother! I'm home from school.
39: That's nice. Go in the pantry and make yourself a peanut butter sandwich, Harriet. (laughs) Harriet, uh-huh.
17: it's me, Martha, Osgood.
39: I'll be right down here. I've been expecting Harriet any minute. Osgood, I've got a surprise for you.
17: Well, now, that's a peculiar coincidence. I've got a surprise for you.
39: You have? What is it?
17: Oh, What's yours?
39: Well, I thought it would be nice if we spent our anniversary in the cottage at Crisco Lake. Oh, yes. uh, what do you say, Osgood? Shall we get away from it all this weekend?
17: Yes, that's not a bad idea.
39: Oh, good. I know we'll have a grand time, dear. Now, what's your surprise?
17: My surprise? Well, I thought it might be a good idea to spend our anniversary at Crystal Lake.
39: Oh, why, Osgood, that's a wonderful idea. <laughs> Hello, Mom. Hi, Dad. Oh, hello, Harriet. Now, if you'll both sit still for a moment, I'll acquaint you with my rarest scheme of the season. I mean, this is rare. Uh, what's rare, dear?
12: Tomorrow's your anniversary, right? That's right. Where do you think you're going to spend it? You'll never guess so, don't even try. In our summer cottage at Crystal Lake.
17: Crystal Lake?
39: Why, by Harriet, that's a wonderful idea. Isn't it,
18: Osgood? Good.
17: It must be. Everybody's getting it. Ah, <laughs> uh, this is the life. I'm certainly glad we didn't close this place up on Labor Day
15: like we usually do.
39: Oh, I knew you'd enjoy yourself here, Osgood. Now, just relax and smoke your pipe. <laughs> I've got a little uh, dusting to do.
17: you got to take a little nap. This hammock is very restful. Uh, Before you go, how about a little anniversary kiss?
39: Oh, but, Osgood, it's only one o'clock in the afternoon. We weren't married until three.
17: Uh, That's all right. Let's have a little preview.
39: (laughs) Osgood, I declare I don't know what comes over you when we come up here. Must be the mountain there.
17: It must be. Come here, baby. Oh, baby.
12: I was just... Oh, am I interrupting something?
1: Uh,
17: no, no, nothing at all, Harriet. I was just about to salute your mother on her anniversary.
12: <laughs> That's as good a reason as any, I guess. Here's some wildflowers I picked for you both. Congratulations and many, many more happy anniversaries for all of us. Oh,
39: thank you, Harriet. Now run along down to the lake, dear. Your father wants to take a little nap. Okay. I'll see if our rowboat's in shape. Don't forget we're going fishing this afternoon. Now you drop off to sleep, Osgood. And I'll I'll wake you in about an hour.
0: Fine, fine.
40: <sighs> I'll get your bag out of the trunk.
30: Oh, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Hmm? Gosh, that was a long drive, but here we are.
29: Yep.
30: Now, it's right up these porch steps, I believe. Yeah. Yoo-hoo! Anybody home?
17: What is this? Who in the world... Miss Brooks! Mr. Boynton! What are you doing here?
30: That's what I like about Crystal Lake, the hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's all the commotion about? Oh, oh, it's you,
39: Miss Brooks, and Mr. Boynton. Oh, I'm so glad you could come.
8: Martha!
24: Did you
39: invite... Of course, dear. I asked Miss Brooks and Mr. Boynton to spend the weekend with us. That's one surprise I didn't tell you. Aren't you tickled? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then act it, Osgood. You certainly don't look tickled.
30: Some people tickle easier than others.
40: (laughs) Maybe Mr. Conklin would rather be alone.
39: Oh, nonsense, Mr. Boynton. Osgood and I see as much of each other alone as we want to. We're already married, you know.
40: (laughs) Uh, Yes, I know. Congratulations on your anniversary. Oh,
39: thank you, Mr. Boynton. I always say, married life is give and take.
40: Me too.
17: you'd have given me a little warning, I wouldn't have let you take me here. (laughs)
39: Now, oh, you two must be all hot and sticky from your drive up here. I, I hope you both have a bathing suit. For Mr. Conklin's
30: sake, I hope we each have a bathing suit. <laughs>
39: well, I'll, I'll show you where to change. Uh, just follow me and we'll all get ready for a nice dip.
17: I don't want to go for a dip.
4: Oh, now,
39: dear, we must do the things our guests want to do.
40: Why? Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm afraid I don't have a suit with me I forgot to pack it
39: Oh, that's all right, Mr. Boynton I'll fix you up with one of Mr. Conklin's I'll come along and you can nap
30: for a few more minutes, Osgood I'll take the folks in tow
17: Yes, do that
30: He sounds like he'd like you to tow us about three miles and then sink us
4: <laughs>
39: uh, You just go right in here, Mr. Boynton You'll find a bathing suit in the bottom drawer of that dresser Oh, well,
40: Thanks, Mrs. Conklin
39: uh, now, here's the guest room. You and my daughter, Harriet, are sharing it for the weekend. Oh, is Harriet here for your anniversary, too? Yes. Oh, she's so devoted. Been like a daughter to
30: us. <laughs> Oh, that's a coincidence.
39: <laughs> now, before I leave you, dear, I-, I want you to know that I planned this weekend for your sake more than anybody's, so I want you to take advantage of it.
30: Oh, that's really very kind of you, Mrs. Conklin.
39: Remember, all you have to do is keep close to Mr. Conklin and myself. Then when Mr. Boynton sees how happy we are, I'm sure he'll start thinking of marriage as a jolly institution it is.
30: Well, what do you say? Are you game? Looks like Mr. Boynton's the game, but I'll take a shot at him. Uh, Or is. You know, I really do like the
39: guy, Mrs. Conklin. I know you, dear, my dear. Now, uh, one more thing. In addition to our example, I think you should show your domesticity as well. So tonight, I want you to cook the dinner. Me? Oh, definitely. Uh, What dish do you prepare best? Soup. (laughs) What kind?
30: Campbell's. I I think
39: something you cook yourself might make a better impression on Mr. Boynton. I know Uh, you can barbecue uh, some spare ribs for dinner. Now uh, get into your suit and I'll see you on the porch. Oh, isn't this
30: fun? It's just like a fox hunt. Tally ho and yoikes! Tally ho to you, Mrs. Conklin. And I hope we all don't make a bunch of yoikes out of ourselves.
17: Stop rocking the hammock, Martha. I'm getting seasick.
39: Very well. Now, now, uh, remember, Osgood, we've got to make a good impression for Miss Brooks' sake.
17: I don't like it, Martha. I never did believe in this matchmaking business. Besides, I thought we'd be alone, at least part of the time. Confounded, all this mountain air going to waste.
39: It uh, won't go to waste, dear. As always, uh, tonight.
17: Yes. Yes. <laughs> Come here, baby. Oh,
39: Oscar. Remember. Remember what I used to call you when we were first married?
4: Yeah.
17: Call me it again, Mother.
39: All right.
30: <laughs> sugar Cookie.
17: Am I really your sugar cookie still?
30: Well, your icing's a little whiter
17: Miss but... <laughs> Brooks, where did you oh, come Oh,
30: hello, Miss Brooks My, what a
39: lovely bathing suit One piece, isn't it? Yes, it is uh, Look at Miss Brooks' bathing suit, Osgood That's long enough Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brooks, be sure and tell Mr. Barton you made the suit yourself Men love practical women. Oh,
40: hello there, everybody. All ready? Oh,
30: it's Mr. Fox. Um, <laughs> Mr. Boynton. I mean, uh,
39: why, uh, Mr. Conklin's suit fits you perfectly, Mr. Boynton. Uh, don't you think so, Miss Brooks? Yes,
30: it's very nice. Aren't the sleeves a little wide at the wrist?
40: <laughs> that is one of my older ones. <laughs> That's uh, quite a suit you have on, Miss Brooks
39: mm, She made it herself,
30: didn't you, dear? Yes, out of an old stocking and some pen wipers <laughs> <laughs> Let's go down to the lake, huh? Come on, Mr. Boynton, I'll race you to the raft
40: You're on, let's go <laughs> Yeah, Here we are I'll help you up, Miss Brooks. Oh.
30: Yeah. Oh. oh, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Oh, that was wonderful.
17: Welcome aboard, folks.
30: <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Conklin. We didn't know you were out here. That's all right, my dear.
40: Uh, let's uh, let's go take a boat ride, Miss Brooks. Oh,
39: nonsense. Why should you leave the raft?
40: Why shouldn't they? Uh,
30: Mr. Boynton? Yes? Last one in is a sugar cookie. Oh. <laughs>
5: This transcribed season debut aired at 7.30 p.m. on KNX in Los Angeles and at 10 p.m. on WCBS in New York. Although the show had to deal with a full slate of competition on both radio and the emerging television market. The first month pulled a respectable rating of 13.5. The audience peaked in December when roughly 15.5 million people were tuning in. I
38: guess you want a boat, huh? Best way in the world to SYH. SYH Spend your honeymoon. <laughs> uh,
40: we're not married. We're just here to rent- Oh,
38: not married, huh? Up here for a little P.S., private smutching. <laughs> no,
40: no, just a minute. All you have to do is rent us a boat.
38: Well, here's one right here with a small motor.
40: Very nice.
38: G-F-N. Good for necking. <laughs> <laughs>
40: We're not going to do anything of the sort.
38: WSS, who says so? <laughs> BT bashful type.
40: <laughs> well, go ahead, get in, Miss. Hey here, let me help you, Miss Brooks. There. Uh, we'll pay you when we come in, all right?
38: Sure. Well, remember, Miss K Y L O Y H H, keep your line out, you'll hook him. S L.
4: Hello.
38: Mhm. H T R, hit the road. <laughs>
32: It was Miss Brooks that virtually the entire cast of the radio version of our Miss Brooks moved to television, didn't it?
0: That's right. The entire cast, with the exception of Jeff Chandler, who became a movie star during the radio run of our Miss Brooks. And when we moved over into television, uh, Universal wouldn't let him appear in the uh, television show because he was signed to star with Universal Pictures. Oh goodness, and that was when they got Bob Rockwell, oh. a dear, a dear, oh. dear sweet man. Yes. Get out of the way! Quick, Miss Brooks, lie on the bottom of the boat. I can't stop it.
30: Oh! 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 What happened? Did we hit them?
40: No, thank heaven. We just missed them.
30: Oh, we're terribly sorry, folks.
40: Oh, that's all right, Miss Brooks. We
17: didn't really want to catch any fish here.
5: In the fall of 1949, our Miss Brooks moved to Sundays at 6.30 p.m. to serve as the lead-in for the newly-migrated Jack Benny program. The show's rating remained strong, even as radio audiences were leaving for TV. In 1952, Eve Arden took the show into television. Most of the radio cast went with her, with the exception of Jeff Chandler, who by then become a leading man in film. It was on
29: radio five years, one uh-huh. of which overlapped the, the four TV. years on television. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Every member of the Armis Brooks radio cast moved into television. Yes, and the only one who didn't, as you know, mm-hmm. was Jeff Chandler. And the reason for that was that Jeff had suddenly become a big motion picture star, plus he really wanted to do it with us. But he just... Physically, and when you looked at Jeff, you didn't believe he was the shy, bumbling Mr. Boynton. Mm. Vocally, he did it. So Bob Rockwell was the perfect replacement for him, you know.
5: Chandler might not have been part of Our Miss Brooks on television, but Eve Arden had her own issues with TV. There was
32: one point in the series on television... Where they tried to change the atmosphere a little bit, didn't they?
29: They came to me and said, number one, they didn't want to take Dick Crenna into TV. Mm -hmm. They asked me to make tests with some boys. And I said, what for? And they said, for Walter Denton. I said, you're crazy. People know Dick. And they said, he's too old. I said, but he doesn't look it. He doesn't sound it. And they'll love him. So they pressured me to make the test, and I said, I'll do it if you make a test of Dick, too. And there was no question after that. Then they came to me partway through and said, We're going to make a big change. Just keep you and Gail Gordon, that's all. And we're going to send you to Hollywood, and it's going. To... I said, It's not going to work. And I bet I have my people back in three months, and I did. Mm-hmm. And it was a shame, but that spoiled it.
32: They changed it from a uh, public school to a private school, and
29: uh, from a high school to a grammar school. And it never recovered from that. That was really the reason we went off the air, and it's a shame. Why did they change that? Why did they want to make the change? Well, we were caught in a game. That is played, really, by an awful lot of TV producers and sponsors. When the time comes to renew, each one pretends that the sponsor and the network say, well the show's ratings are going down a little and it's not as good as it used to be. So then the creative people get very upset and they come and say, but we've got a great new idea, you know. And then they change it, and it ruins the whole thing.
25: American
4: Novels.
25: In the proud rediscovery of our past, Americans are turning with more and more enthusiasm to our first renowned national literary figure. The New York in which he was born in 1783 furnished an inexhaustible treasury for the freshness and excitement of his writings, as well as for the enjoyment of all who were to read him. NBC's University of the Air brings you one of his beloved stories as narrated by the author under his pseudonym of Dietrich Neckervacher. Another in our series of books that live, Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow.
5: As the end of summer turns into autumn, the weather cools off in Friday night football games, dances, and eventually All Hallows' Eve become part of school functions. In 1820, one of America's first great novelists, Washington Irving, penned a short story called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. The tale is about a schoolmaster, Ichabod Crane, a superstitious outsider. He's competing for the hand of Katrina Van Tassel, daughter and sole child of a wealthy farmer. Sleepy Hollow is a small village in Westchester County, just north of New York City. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the shore of the Hudson,
41: there lies a small rural port by the name of Tarrytown. It is of particular interest this week because Tarrytown is the focus of attention as America's model community for United Nations Week. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there's a little valley among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the world. From the listless repose of the place, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name
5: of Sleepy Hollow. This aired on NBC's American Novels from WMAQ Chicago on Friday, September 19, 1947 at 10.30 p.m. Part of a larger series called The World's Great Novels, the concept was born from the NBC Education Department.
4: A
41: drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Most of the good inhabitants would have you believe that the neighborhood was at one time
31: bewitched. I bewitched... Bewitched as sure as I'm sitting here by my spinning wheel. Long before this country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson, an old Indian chief, a wizard he was, held his secret communings with the spirits in this very spot of land. And his spirit still haunts the place.
41: Yes, indeed. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. But this is one specter who seemed the commander-in-chief of this region, the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head.
31: And woe be to those of you who would scoff at him. He is as real as the living who ride the hills by day. It is the ghost of a Hessian trooper Whose head was carried away by a cannonball during a revolutionary battle. And in the gloom of night, he rides along on the wings of the wind in search of his head. There's not a soul within this valley who does not know and fear him. The headless horseman. Aye, the headless horseman.
41: To this byplace of nature, some 15 years after the revolution, there came a personage from the state of Connecticut. He was tall and lank, with narrow shoulders and hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves. His feet might have served for shovels, and his whole body was so loosely hung together that to see him striding across a hill with his clothes bagging about him, one might easily have mistaken him for some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His name was Ichabod Crane. The main duty of Master Crane was to instruct the children of the vicinity. His schoolhouse was a low log building of one room, whose windows were partly glazed and partly patched with old copybooks.
13: Silence! Silence! Or I shall keep all of you after school for a solid hour. Now, uh, Walter, uh, proceed. Uh... uh, uh the uh, class is waiting, Walter. You will kindly solve the problem I gave you.
4: Uh... Put down six and carry three.
13: Quiet. Put down six and carry four.
4: Oh, uh, yeah. Carry
31: four. Proceed. Uh, I... I can't do the sums, sir.
13: Uh, do you recollect, Walter, that this is one of the sums I gave you yesterday to study at home?
4: Yes, sir. Uh,
13: perhaps you need something stronger than word of mouth to teach you your sums.
4: No, sir. I'll learn them. Please. Oh! Oh, 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 oh.
13: Idleness is a vicious sin. Uh, the hurt will soon pass, Walter, but you will always remember the lesson you have learned today... ...and thank me for it through the longest day you live.
4: Yes, sir.
13: Spare the rod and spoil the child. And now, uh, for the next sum.
41: The lordly sway with which he ruled in his little empire, the school... ...was only one passage of Ichabod's nature, however... Since he lived a week at a time with the farmers of the neighborhood, and since he was an amazingly huge feeder, it behooved him to make himself both useful and agreeable to his patrons.
13: I think I have that fence tolerably well mended,
5: Mistress Van Ritter.
31: I'm obliged to you, Master
5: Crane. Ichabod sees marriage to 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 Katrina as a path to wealth, but his rival, Van Brunt, plays a series of pranks on the jittery schoolmaster, and tensions among the three are soon brought to a head. On a cool autumn night, Crane attends a harvest party at the Van Tassels homestead. He dances, feasts, and listens to ghostly legends told by Van Brunt and the other locals.
13: I would like to speak to your father about you. I, I. I'd like to ask for your hand My hand? In marriage
31: In marriage? In
20: marriage? (laughs) Marriage?
5: (laughs) Ichabod leaves after failing to secure Katrina's hand Riding his horse through the woodland Between the homestead and Sleepy Hollow It was
41: the very witching time of night That Ichabod, heavy hearted and crestfallen Pursued his travels homeward In the dead hush of midnight, no signs of life occurred near him. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in Sleepy Hollow now came crowding his mind. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the giant tulip tree, where many people said was a favorite spot for ghosts and goblins. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. Then, as he drew a bit nearer, his large green eyes grew ever bigger.
13: Oh, there's something white hanging in that tree. Oh, no, only a spot where lightning escaped it and laid the wood bare. Come on, gunpowder. What was that? Oh, but two boughs of the tree rubbing against each other. Uh, don't uh, be afraid, Gunpowder. If there were but some way to get back without crossing Wiley Swamp, all who know say it's a haunted stream. I shall give Gunpowder a score of kicks and then we'll cross the bridge quickly. Now! No, no, no. You're going the wrong way, Gunpowder. We must cross the logs, not run beside them. Giddyap. Now, turn around, Gunpowder. What? What was that? Oh, something. Something in the shadow of that grove. Something black and towering. I must show it I'm not afraid. Who are you? Uh, Who are you? Who doesn't answer? I must get away. Come on,
31: I'm gunpowder
13: Oh, it's coming out of the shadows. But it's still so dark, I can only tell it's a horseman. Large on a powerful horse. Perhaps we can outride him. Oh, he's riding fast, too. I don't like this. Uh, perhaps if we lag behind, he will pass us, gunpowder. He's slacking with us. Oh, we're coming to a rise in the ground where it's lighter. Uh, perhaps I shall recognize him. <gasps> He, He's He's headless. Oh! He's carrying his head before him on the saddle <laughs> He's chasing us. faster, faster gunpowder! I shall have to hang on to your neck gunpowder. If we can just reach the bridge, we shall be safe. The headless horseman does not cross there. Oh He's right behind us. I can feel the breath of the horse on my neck. Come on, on gunpowder.) <laughs> Uh, Over the bridge it lies Oh He's rising in his stirrups He's
3: throwing his head at me Ah! And it was right here by the bridge That I found his hat and the shattered pumpkin it seemed the pumpkin had been thrown from some distance.
31: Oh, dear, dear.
3: I found my horse gunpowder outside my gate the next morning. There was no sign of Master Crane at breakfast
31: nor the dinner hour. The boys assembled at school that day, but he never appeared. And he hasn't been seen nor heard from since. How I shall miss him! He could recount so many tales of his bravery among ghosts and goblins. <laughs>
41: Some years later, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit reported that Ichabod Crane was still alive, had studied law, and finally been made a justice of the Ten Pound Court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after the disappearance led Katrina to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was told. And he always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin which led some to suspect he knew more than he chose to tell. But the old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintained this day
5: that... On July 30th, 1948, the show was renamed the NBC University Theatre of the Air, and production moved to Hollywood, the series was offered as a college-accredited course and was considered one of the most ambitious radio programs on the air. It now featured intermission commentary from luminaries and won a Peabody Award before going off the air on February 14, 1951.
25: The narrator Don Gallagher. Maury Copeland played Bram Delmira played Katrina. The narrator was Philip Lord. Viola Berwick was Mistress Van Ritter. The wives were Hilda Graham and Alma Platt. Others were Stuart Slam, George Kluge, and Charles Mump. This is Don Elder. This program comes to you from Chicago and is a presentation of the National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
9: To get back to that other thing I was talking about, the theory of the actor inspiring the writer, have any things that he has done, any uh, treatments that he has given the part ever inspired you, given you an idea for some future... Well, any any writer or any producer who ignores an actor's suggestions is an idiot, because they have some very valuable contributions to make. They know what they want to say and how they're going to say it. And the, the best radio writing is done for certain talents and for certain people tailored to their delivery. Everyone on our show is free to submit ideas and they all take advantage of it. They all submit them and we listen very respectfully to them.
5: Radio's Don Quinn rose to fame as Jimmy Marion Jordan's head writer.
9: Well, radio writing is a highly competitive business, and it's a great strain during the broadcasting season. And uh, when vacation time comes along, it's highly welcome. Anything you can do to relax is all to the good, and there is nothing like a trip to Hawaii <laughs> in this direction. <laughs> That's so true. You know, in this business, very often the question is, from what profession do you come? How did you get into radio? How about with you, Mr. Quinn? I came from the ranks of commercial cartooning, which in 1929 and 30 laid, as Variety says, a big egg. <laughs> I had been giving jokes to a radio comedian around Chicago named Jim Jordan, who is now Fever McGee. Yes. They asked me if I would write a show for them called Smack Out, which was a rural community country store skit. And I wrote this for four years, a country store, rural thing, without ever having been off the city street. So you can uh, see uh, I'm a fraud all the way along here, writing a uh, college show with no education, and uh, as a city boy writing a country show. Fibber McGee and Molly stemmed from that country uh-huh. store skit. Because mm-hmm. we featured tall stories, this is why we called him Fibber McGee. Oh, I see. Uh, that's where the name Fibber came yeah. from. And that's how you came to start writing that script. Yeah. I neglected to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that Mr. Quinn did, of course, also originate Fibra McGee, and Molly and wrote it for many, many years. Seventeen, we have, to be exact. Seventeen, really? Yes.
5: Throughout the 1940s, as he wrote Fibber, McGee, and Molly, Quinn mulled over the idea of creating a college-centered comedy.
9: Well, this was a, a mental conception which... Like all reporters have a play in the trunk which is never finished, the ideal book or play or production. This was my idea of a show in which a thought can be expressed once in a while, a little above the average low comedy. I have very high respect for low comedy.
5: Entitled The Halls of Ivy, in June of 1949 an audition tape was produced with Gail Gordon and Edna Best in the title roles
38: dear must you pace back and forth like that like a hyena in a zoo
36: a hyena that's a rather rude comparison victoria a hyena is a nasty animal if we must be zoological let me be something a little more noble uh, a tiger
28: a lion that's what you are the king of the beast
15: well
4: <laughs>
5: thank you When both had to back out, Nat Wolfe, who was Edna Best's husband, and Don Quinn's agent, thought of his friend, Ronald Coleman.
9: Uh, How did the charming Colemans get into the picture? By inadvertence, a lucky inadvertence, fortuitous. The show was originally written for Mr. Gail Gordon, who is a very prominent and, to my mind, the most proficient actor in radio, a fine man. It was written for him and Edna Best, the English actress, But Miss Best had to go east to do some Maurice Evans plays in New York, and Mr. Gordon was tied up contractually and couldn't have him, so we had to frantically recast. And Mr. and Mrs. Coleman were suggested, and they turned out to be the ideal people. I don't know why we didn't think of them in the first place, but they have just been wonderful ever since they are Dr. Hall. As a matter of fact, he gets mail addressed to Dr. Hall asking him to solve college problems.
31: where are you?
7: Right here in the library, Benita.
5: <laughs> Ronald and Benita Coleman started appearing on radio in 1945 as reoccurring guests on the Jack Benny program. They'd shown themselves to be masters of dry humor. Yes,
31: tonight. Who? Oh. You remember? Jack. Jack Wellington, from London.
5: Oh,
28: yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I forgot.
7: <laughs> Good old Wellington. Then you did mail him the note I wrote.
31: No, I couldn't find the note anywhere. I think it must have blown out of the window. Well, I phoned him instead. He'll be here in a minute. Oh,
7: Splendid, splendid.
31: Well, aren't you going to dress?
7: No, oh, no, no, not for Wellington. No, this turtleneck sweater is all right. He likes informality. Oh, well,
31: then I won't bother either. I said, look, could you come and help me choose the wine for dinner?
7: Yes, in a, in a moment, dear, as soon as I finish this letter. Now, let me see.
5: I can't stand Jack Benny because... In the fall of 1949... Ronald Coleman was under contract with Benton and Bowles to appear exclusively on CBS's Prudential Family Hour of the Stars. Surprisingly, the agency agreed to give him an unconditional
7: release.
5: Ronald and Benita then signed three-year contracts to star in the Halls of Ivy. The show premiered coast-to-coast on NBC with the episode Reappointment on Friday, January 6th, 1950 at 8 p.m.
21: This is Ken Carpenter saying welcome to the
25: world premiere of the new Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman show. The Halls of Ivy, sponsored by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, brewers of Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. <laughs> so now, the
6: Halls of That surround
34: us here today
4: And we will not forget Though we be far, far, away
25: Welcome to Ivy, the town of Ivy and Ivy College. Ivy College is co-educational and non-sectarian. And its age is indicated by the fact that, until recently, the curriculum required two years of Greek. Ivy is all-American. Its student body is a pretty fair cross-section of our country's youthful seekers of knowledge. Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, Ph.D., LLD, and M.A., is president of Ivy, at least until the end of the month. His reappointment is under discussion now by the Board of Governors, now meeting in the east wing
24: of the library.
15: I have to catch the 4 o'clock train back to town. We used to get a $20 gold I hope you uh, can make it for the weekend. Gentlemen,
24: gentlemen, gentlemen. Gentlemen, we have one more item of business on our agenda, and an important one. It concerns the reappointment... Of Dr. Hall as president. Hardly a matter of controversy. He's made a he fine, president. He shouldn't take long. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Of course gentlemen. not. It seems to me, as chairman of this board, that Dr. Hall's record is so eminently satisfactory that there can be no serious obstacle in the way of his confirmation. His six years of service has... Mr. Wellman?
15: Yes. What about Mrs. Hall? Mrs. Hall is oh, the nicest but woman but on the camera. Anything else to worry gentlemen, about? Gentlemen, an inspiration. Gentlemen.
24: What about Mrs. Hall, Mr. Wellman? Well,
15: I have nothing against the lady personally, but it seems to me that I... I mean, this is hearsay, of course, and I don't ordinarily
24: pay much attention to student gossip. Will you please uh, get to the point, Mr. Wellman, if there is one? There is
15: one. To put it bluntly, there is some doubt in my mind whether a man whose wife is an ex-actress... and a musical comedy actress at that is the right woman. I mean, if he is the right man to be president of a college like Ivy... with a conservative tradition. No, a I have no, 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 have the
24: tradition of this college. Gentlemen, please. <laughs> Mr. Wellman has raised a point which, however seriously it should be taken... does have a bearing on Dr. Hall's reappointment. My personal feeling, for your information is that Mrs. Hall's charm and sympathy for and with the younger element is a definite advantage to Dr. Hall's work. This is one opinion. You may hold contrary ones. But I should like to confine the discussion to a period of one half hour. At that time, we will vote for or against reappointment. Uh, Uh, Mr. Merriweather? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm not
15: an Ivy alumnus. I just happen to be a filthy, rich, old man who's dropped some fairly large sums of money on your campus. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, well. The dignity of this oh, college... dignity, my foot. Gentlemen, gentlemen. gentlemen, gentlemen.
24: gentlemen <laughs> if you please, gentlemen. Order, please. May I remind <clears throat> you that appointing a president of this college is a serious matter. And any pertinent discussion should also be serious. The question of Dr. Hall's fitness and the character of his Toddy,
28: dear, must you pace back and forth like that, like a hyena in the zoo?
5: A hyena? That's a rather rude comparison. Ronald Coleman played William Todd Hunter Hall, the president of Ivy College, with Benita playing his wife, the former English theater star, Miss Victoria Cromwell.
9: We get material from all directions, particularly the people concerned with the show. We have bought scripts from the violinist in the show, from the musical director from two of the engineers from an announcer a lot of people around the show offer ideas now we hesitate to accept an idea from outside from people we do not know as a matter of fact we return them unread this is a rather a, it's too bad because we probably pass up a great many wonderful ideas but motion picture studios use this too because the the dangers of suit for plagiarism later on are so great from uh, crackpots and opportunists that they don't dare read unsolicited manuscripts. We have to depend on known sources. We have a staff of three or four writers, of which I am one, and uh, I edit all the shows. No show goes on without my having edited every word of it, and practically rewriting the whole show, mostly. But it's a it's a very small, stable, as we say, of writers, and uh, most of our shows come stem from those.
5: Don Quinn was a master of quips and puns, but much of the actual writing was left first to playwrights Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee and later to Milton and Barbara Merlin. Quinn acted as editor and overseer.
9: Don, do you work with the uh, production itself? I mean, do you attend the rehearsals yourself and so on? I work very closely with the production. I see the script all the way through, editing every word, inserting a great deal of my own work. Then I attend every rehearsal and every broadcast
3: Hello, Mrs. Hall. Gee, I'm glad you're home.
9: This, to me, is one of the writer's obligations, because if anything should happen, if an emergency should arise at the last minute, the writer must be there to make corrections and changes. an actor has an accident on the way to the studio. This leaves a very embarrassing gap in in the script. So I think it's part of a writer's duty to follow through the actual broadcast.
5: The supporting cast included Gloria Gordon as the maid, Herb Butterfield as Clarence Willman, and Willard Waterman as John Merriweather.
16: That was one of the things in radio, which uh, doesn't apply to television. You could play anything you could sound. Anything you could sound. And uh, we all did many different characters on the same show a lot of times.
32: That was your value to the producer or the director that you could double, triple sometimes. Or hireable because.
16: Uh They knew we could do a couple of different kicks. Mm-hmm.
5: Ken Carpenter
9: announced. What was the best thing you've been associated with? What did you enjoy the most? Oh, I don't know. I enjoyed the whole thing. That is, radio was a wonderful time to work in those days. A great time because that was it. People had that for entertainment. The great thing about it was, I think, about radio, about television, is it was... It was consistent that the show went on and stayed in that same spot year mm. after year after year. And I think it sold merchandise regardless of ratings just because it was there, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's unfortunate that they switch the shows around so much. You get used to a, a
16: television show in a certain particular spot, a night, and you look forward to it, all of a sudden it's on a different night. Oh, I know
5: I'm Fred
3: Astaire, but Mrs. Hall is a wonderful teacher.
5: The stories concern critical turning points in the lives of students, teachers, friends, and occasionally a crisis for Ivy itself.
9: During the war, in the government allocation program of war messages on Fibber McGee and Mali, we found that we could sell an idea embedded in comedy very successfully. We used to to take the war themes and build shows around them rather than tie them on the end of the show and brush them off. So uh, with this in mind, I thought I would like to do a fairly literate type of show, For me, I didn't think it would ever go on. It was just a dream show. But my agent and very good friend, Mr. Nat Wolfe, who was the husband of Edna Best, the English actress, kept after me to write this show until I finally did it to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. The first show went on exactly as written. I don't think a word was changed. It was quite a successful thing from the beginning, much to my gratification. Yes, of course. That must have been a thrill of satisfaction for, for a writer, eh? After dreaming about it for a while, yes, this was a dream come true. It doesn't happen very often. It was purely then from the standpoint of a writer's uh, ideas. He would like to get across a thought, as you say, a serious or a worthwhile thought. That's right. Dressed up in comedy, huh? Yes. In almost every show, no matter how frothy the show itself is, we try to have at least one line or paragraph or idea which you can take home with you. If Mm -hmm. it's only, "Don't kick dogs" or "Be good to your mother." Yes. Usually, it's some little bit of philosophy, maybe borrowed, maybe original. But in every show, we like to have one serious thought. Exactly. And I think we've done it fairly successfully. They are
7: psychic growing pains. Ah, oh, that's probably Mr. Gray.
5: Todd Hunter always and took a been personal been been hand in these matters. Like in the third episode, The Gangster's Son, the which featured myself. William Conrad.
31: A gentleman to see you, Dr. All, a Mr. Malott.
7: Mr. Malott? Malott? Well, he couldn't be the... Ask him in, Penny.
31: Right in here, sir.
7: Hello? How do you do? Uh, Penny, please take the things away, will you? Unless I can offer you a cup, sir.
35: No, thank you. Dr. Hall, I'm Mike Mallott.
7: Yes, I've seen your picture in the paper. What did you wish to see me about?
35: Well, Dr. Grapevine says you're out after some dough for a new gem. Is that right?
7: The grapes on your vine are a little overripe, Mr. Mallott Is rather common knowledge What about it?
35: I want to give you some May
7: I ask you a question, Mr. Mallot?
35: Sure But I warn you, Doc I've been questioned by experts under brighter lights than you've gotten here <laughs> Go ahead What business are you in? Well, that's a fair question I got a string of dry cleaning joints That's on top, on the bottom I make book
7: Bookmaking is not a legal operation, Mr.
35: Malotte. Legal or illegal, Doc, depends on locations. Horse booking is against the law in this country. In England, it's legal.
7: Well, then I suggest you make your donation to Oxford. That's in England.
35: (laughs) I ain't got a kid in Oxford.
7: You have a, a kid attending Ivy
34: College?
35: Yeah, son. I didn't know that. Well, not many people do, Doc, and I want to keep it off the record. He's a good boy. I want to see him get the breaks that I didn't get when I was a kid. In a cold water flat, laying on a cheap mattress with a piece of billiard cue, waiting for the next rat to come out of the plaster.
7: Uh, Mr. Malotte, I fully sympathize with your intention of giving your son the advantages you lacked.
35: I'm not asking for sympathy, Doc. I'm asking for a square deal for the kid, that's all.
7: Ivy College does not sell square deals, Mr. Malotte. We have here the... Sons and daughters of rich men, poor men, beggar men, thieves, doctors, lawyers, and merchants of almost everything. I doubt if anyone here expects more of a square deal than he is entitled to through hard work, decency, and a certain civilizing contact with his fellows.
35: How do they get this contact? I should think
7: that would be obvious in classes, fraternities, sports.
35: Yeah, but Eddie ain't getting it. Why, isn't he? I don't know. He's got a nice personality, but no nice friends, only stooges. I want to get him into a fraternity, and don't tell me that ain't for sale.
7: I do tell you that.
35: Now, wait a minute. If this school gets, say, a quarter of a million bucks toward a new gymnasium, you mean nobody can pull hard enough to get a boy into a fraternity? Uh, Mr. Malad,
7: I'm afraid your somewhat violent training has distorted your social viewpoint.
35: Well, huh? break that down. LAUGHTER I shall.
7: Uh, You, Mr. Malotte, have had too much experience with special privilege. You've spent too many years purchasing crooked policemen, aldermen, judges. You've made yourself a power in the land through money, through fear. You are a totalitarian. If your son wishes to... Does he, by the way, know that you are here in his behalf? (laughs) If he knew it, he'd slug me. Good. What? Well, I say good because now I'm interested in Eddie Uh, Eddie who, by the way? I gather he is not using your name
35: Oh, Gray, Eddie Gray
7: I'll talk to your son, Mr. Malotte, But I'm afraid I must refuse your donation to our gymnasium fund You
35: mean my money ain't good enough,
7: huh? Oh, money has no status of its own It's merely a medium of exchange The only question that arises is What would we be expected to exchange for it? In this case, special privileges to one Eddie Gray. However, I am uh, impressed by any boy who has the integrity to poke his father in the nose for attempting to buy him into the good graces of his fellows.
35: You don't accept a donation, huh? Not yours, Mr. Maladis.
7: Well, that's my personal reaction. I may be overruled.
35: Uh Uh-huh. Well, okay. Wellman thought you might take that attitude. Wellman? Yeah,
7: you mean Mr. Clarence Wellman of our governing board? Mm-hmm.
35: He really wants this gymnasium, you know. Well, thanks for the conversation. Uh, you don't have to go to the door with me. I, uh, I won't steal anything on the way out. <laughs> the,
7: the only thing I have which you might want can neither be stolen nor sold, Mr. Mallott. Good day.
35: Yeah, I'll be seeing you. A quarter
7: of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Paul, I'm afraid your vaunted integrity will someday get you a fine position running a filling station.
31: Would I be too inquisitive, Toddy, if I asked what Mr. Malot wanted?
7: Oh, so you recognized him, eh, Yeah,
20: uh, I, I recognize his voice. I've heard him in the courtroom, in newsreels. I never forget a voice. He's, um, arrogant, isn't he?
7: He has the arrogance of purchasing power. A man who has lifted himself by his own bootleg, if I may perpetrate a mild pun. <laughs> Uh, Vicky. Yes, dear.
20: Yeah.
7: See if you can get a student named Eddie Gray to come over and see me, will you?
20: Certainly. Uh, oh, Eddie Gray. Well, that's the boy who's been trying to see you all day.
7: Yes, he's Mike Malotte's son. No. I'm anxious to talk to him. His father is a sterling character, devaluated. I, <laughs> I want to see how far the devaluation has gone.
9: We happened to be on for a beer sponsor. Yes, and one some fanatic type in California said that we were undermining the youth of the nation Mm -hmm. and uh, selling them into alcoholic slavery.
4: Curious. I tasted
9: it. Another (laughs) such nonsense. (gasps) Yeah. And as the the privilege of answering a personal letter was mine, I answered this and told her that. Christ's first miracle was turning water into wine, and I hoped one of his later ones would be turning bigots into human beings. Oh, marvelous. There's a line for a writer if I ever heard one. It must be a great pleasure for you to work with the Coleman's, isn't it? It is pure delight because they're very charming, literate, gracious people. We couldn't be fonder of them than we are, and they're very conscientious, they do a wonderful job. Mr. Coleman is somewhat of a literary authority himself which oh. saves me a great deal of work. I could refer <laughs> yes. to him instead of Bartlett's quotation. Oh, indeed. <laughs> I was going to ask you if they ever made any suggestions, do they? They have both written scripts. Ronnie has written two scripts, and Benita has written one. They are very sharp critics. They know when a, when a, a theme or an attitude is fraudulent, and correct it. Not that it often is in this show, because we work too closely together. But they are, are very sharp in detecting a false note or a lack of quality.
5: In May of 1950, the Halls of Ivy moved to Wednesdays at 8 p.m., but never established itself as a ratings powerhouse. Radio audiences were shrinking, and the Halls of Ivy peaked, with a 6.7 rating in 1951. Schlitz Brewers canceled their advertising after the June 25, 1952 episode. NBC held an option on the show to renew in the fall with a new sponsor. But with advertising dollars moving to TV, no buyer was interested. The times were changing anyway. In 1951, when Don Quinn was on vacation in Hawaii the Red Channels were becoming an entertainment industry issue.
9: You said that this is, uh, I didn't have to answer a question. Well, you don't have to listen to this answer either. But, oh. <laughs> but uh, there was a recent blast in the newspaper by, I think, Senator McCarran, charging oh. the that the Radio Writers Guild was red-dominated. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Well, I think it is pure hogwash. Senator McCarran is a politician... And all politicians will do almost anything for a vote or a headline or to perpetuate themselves in office. And I think this charge is pure nonsense. I've known these writers for many, many years, almost a great many of them personally. Neither in council meetings nor membership meetings has politics ever arisen. Oh, this really? It's one of the two taboo subjects. The other is the quality of radio shows, because other authors, your friends, are present. We don't discuss each other's shows. Oh, yes. And And you uh, do not discuss politics? We do not discuss politics, except where legislation is pending concerning the welfare and status of writers in general. Oh, yes. This is the only thing the Guild is interested in, is the status of writers and their welfare. And the fact that there are probably, as in all organizations where you have six or seven hundred members, there are probably a few communists. But they certainly do not dominate the Guild. As a matter of fact, I don't think I know any, and I know a lot of these men personally... Mm -hmm. In the first place, the chances of a subversive attitude or line or script reaching the air are highly remote. Not many writers are communists because they are independent thinkers, and the Communist Party does not welcome independent thinkers. These are individuals, granted that they are all shades of political opinions and a great many of them are liberals. This does not make them communists, in my mind, because I'm a liberal myself. To get a subversive line on the air after going through production men, advertising men, mimeograph girls, engineers, uh, network authorities, continuity acceptance, this would require a collusion on the part of all people, which would be utterly fantastic. Yes. And I think to get uh, communistic ideas either on the screen or on the radio are very remote. I've never heard one in all my years of radio writing. As a matter of fact, the record of the writers during the war effort was very, very good. I personally have a, a drawer full of citations, medals, and recommendations from various government agencies, and I'm only one writer. Yes. They, they've all done great work during the war and supported the government in all ways. It uh, annoys me very much to hear this group branded as red dominated because I do not think they are. In fact, I. Sure they're not.
6: Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from suspense, lights out, Quiet, Please, The Shadow, and more. Each
25: episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and
37: humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls.
42: I know. Uh, we had the joy of hearing Elliot. Oh, Lewis. Yes. yes. While we were in our cabin, uh, I don't know if you know that, but my husband wanted to get away from the profession and build a log cabin in the wilderness and live in a primitive manner. And we saved to do that. We worked a year and a half in New York, and then we left for the wilderness. We came back to civilization. When we needed to get more money so we could leave again. (laughs) So we would come back and, but while we were in the cabin at magical night Mm -hmm. and it was snowing and it was deep six feet outside and we heard these two voices
28: and we grabbed each other. (laughs) What's that? Because we
42: knew everybody from New York and from California, and we kept track of all of them. And so we didn't know, and so we wrote a letter to Elliot, we didn't know who it was, Elliot Lewis mm. and Bill Conrad. Those two voices yes. we heard, mm. and they were so electrifying oh, yeah. that we were just enthralled. Mm. We said, God, when we go back, I hope we can meet them, you know. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was, so, it was so fascinating uh, yeah. to hear a new kind of voice. And yeah. It meant so much, as radio meant always to us, as it would to everyone, of course, who lived in a remote place.
32: But, of course, it was mostly television after the war that uh, really shut the lid on... uh, It completely shut the lid on it. But you were very much involved with radio right up to the very end. Right Uh, up to
15: the end, yeah.
32: I guess CBS was the last of the... Yes,
15: I think I I did the last radio show, network radio show that was done here, dramatic show, called Johnny Dollar. Bob Bailey, next Mm -hmm. Chicagoan, was playing Johnny Dollar on it. In the summer of
5: 1955... CBS executives were looking for a way to increase weeknight listenership in a cost-effective manner. They decided to revive a once-popular programming format, the 15-minute weeknight serial. The show they picked to relaunch was yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
25: From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar.
43: Mr. John Dollar? Yes? Western Union, I have a message for you from New York. Oh? Please proceed Northern Hotel, Clinton, Colorado, as soon as possible. Yeah? Building irregularities suspected affecting several insurance companies will advise. Regards. Signed, Albert Davies, Chief Investigator, United Adjustment Bureau, New York, New York. Uh Uh-huh. Would you like that mail to you, Mr. Dollar?
36: Uh, no, no, don't bother. Can you take an answer? Go ahead. To Albert Davies, Chief Investigator, United Adjustment Bureau. You have the address. Confirming. Exact time of arrival to follow. Sign that, Johnny Dollar.
33: Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
36: <laughs> expense accounts submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the United Adjustment Bureau, New York City, New York. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Clinton matter. Or maybe racket is a better word. Expense account, first item, $105.63. Transportation by Air, Hartford to Denver. Item 2, 2850, Denver to Grand Junction. A place busy and bustling with uranium hopefuls. Third expenditure, $100. Deposit and rental on a car, which I used to drive the 105 miles through the rugged mountains due north of Grand Junction to Clinton, Colorado, a place that the rental agents had described as a sleepy little mountain town. When I got there, everybody was running in the direction of what was very shortly not going to be the new school building. Like everybody else in Clinton, Colorado, I spent the next three hours or so helping to try and get the fire under control. Then finally, I left the scene and located the Northern Hotel, where the clerk was standing by waiting for me.
40: Mr. Dollar?
35: Uh, yeah. Operator 18, New York City, has been calling you for the last four hours. Uh, Mr. Davies, I believe.
36: Oh, yeah. Could you
35: put the call in for me? Certainly, I'd be glad to.
36: I'll take it up to my room. I want to change
40: my clothes. Certainly. Boy, take Mr. Dollar's bags up to 310.
36: I shaved and showered, changed clothes, and unpacked. From my window, I could see the still glowing embers of the fire, red against the winter nights. The school building was completely destroyed. Beyond, the snow-covered Rockies rose all about the town of Clinton, which I had yet to see. Johnny Dollar.
35: I uh, have your call now, Mr. Dollar. Oh, good, thanks. Johnny? Hi, Al. Say, I've been trying to get to you all day. I thought you were going
36: to let me know the minute you got into town. Well, there was a fire here, Al. I had to pitch in and help along with everybody else. Oh, I see. Well, has Osborne contacted you yet about this case? Osborne? Who's that? Julian
35: Osborne. Look, I talked to him in Clinton last night. He said he'd wait around the hotel until you showed up. He lives there, Johnny. He drove into Denver two days ago and told the insurance broker he thought a building the Great Eastern Fidelity covered was in real bad shape. Now, what building? Well, a new school that they just put up there, Johnny.
36: Al, it was in bad shape. Worse shape now. It fell down about four hours ago. That was the fire, Al.
33: Oh. Well, Great Eastern's in for
35: $200,000. Look, Johnny, contact Julian Osborne and see what he has to say. Right. And call me
34: back when you find out what's what.
5: So long. Radio veteran Jack Johnstone, most recently at the helm of Jimmy Stewart's The Six Shooter was brought in to direct. I directed in the studio,
8: wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up. Or maybe all of them, then they all sped up, and then the next (laughs) signal was, (laughs) as you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit, and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. Sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS, over the other networks, simply because of the personnel involved, they were far more interested
5: in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. The new format allowed for significant character development time. Because the show was unsponsored and CBS costs sustained, many of Hollywood Radio's affordable bests were involved, like Parley Bear.
6: Some people still did that. I know Jack Johnstone used to direct. He never went in the booth. He directed as they did... 400 years ago, he'd put earphones on at his own booth and stood right in the studio with you, which most of us found extremely annoying. He was a very affable man, but he, uh, I said, gosh, say, the, your credit should be directed and conducted by, because he, he'd wave and point and whatnot, and he insisted on certain weird techniques that after a while you rebelled at, but if you wanted to work, you did it.
5: Yeah. <laughs> The original choice for lead was former Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore. He recorded an audition in August of 1955. Good
16: night. Three things interfered with sleep that night. The pleading in the eyes of the girl. The smells and sounds that drifted into my room from the restless, crowded city. And the watcher who was still at his station across the street when I turned out my light.
5: There was only one problem. The always busy Moore couldn't take the role, so new auditions were held the next month. Bob Bailey got the part. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, re over CBS Airwaves at 8.15 p.m. on October 3rd, 1955.
35: Yes, Mr. Dollar, may I help you?
36: Yeah. Do you have a city directory here in Clinton?
35: We aren't that small. Here it is. Right here. Good. After all, we have 14,263 people. Okay, thanks. I know most of them, Mr. Dollar. Who do you
36: want to get in touch with? A man named Julian Osborne. Uh, Julian
35: Osborne? Yeah. Know him? I didn't know him, but it came over the radio a little while ago. They found his body in the fire. He burned to death. A four-block walk
36: down the icy streets of the town took me to the sheriff's office. and Face to face with a heavy-set, owlish-looking man named Doherty. Sheriff Paul Doherty. He smiled professionally until I got around to inquiring about Julian Osborne.
6: Oh.
15: Well, uh, you his family? No, no. I, I made the trip here to Clinton to see
36: him especially, though. I just heard he was killed in the fire.
15: Yes. Yes, too bad about Mr. Osborne.
36: I don't quite understand about it, though.
15: He was school janitor. Oh. What uh, What was your business with him, Mr. Dollar?
36: Insurance investigation.
15: Oh. Yeah, husband reported
36: the possibility of something wrong with the new school. He He did. Uh, to who? To our brokers in Denver. That's why they sent me out here.
15: Well, <laughs> your trip was for nothing then. Maybe. Well, you think if he had anything like that on his mind, he'd have come to me, wouldn't he? Yes. Did he? No. No. Used to pass him on the street. Never said a word. Uh-huh. Where's the body? Morgue. I, uh... I wouldn't go over there, son. I want to contact
36: some of his family's his friends.
15: Well, that might be hard to do. No family here, no close friends. Used to prospect for a living until he got kind of old. Then he took the job janitoring. Lived right there in the basement of the school. Eh, uh, city will bury him. I see
36: How long had he worked at the school?
15: Six months since the place was built. Mm -hmm. Who hired him? The principal, Flory Hawkins. Flory
36: Hawkins. Where can I find her?
15: Lives on Pearson Street. That's one block over and two blocks to your left. Number uh, 326. 326 Pearson, huh? That's right. And son, Mm -hmm.
5: bad night to go calling on her. Two of dollars riding mainstays were Les Crutchfield and E. Jack Newman. Les was
8: far and away the finest writer of the bunch, in my humble opinion. John Dawson. E. Jack Newman? E. Jack Newman. Right. Yeah. That's his real name. E. Jack Newman. He had written a lot of scripts for previous Johnny Dollar series. And when CBS decided to do the series again, they asked him for scripts. And he took some of the old half-hour scripts that he'd previously written and broke them down into five 15-minute shows. They asked me to direct the things. He wrote excellent scripts. Les Crutchfield wrote beautiful scripts. Sidney Marshall wrote some great scripts. A couple of other writers participated in these series. But then television began to beckon and began to pay about five times as much as CBS could pay, and they became just unavailable. And finally, one day, I sat down at the typewriter and decided I'd better write a script in an awful hurry. This was the Laird Douglas Douglas of Heather's Coat matter. Laird Douglas Douglas of Heather's Coat was a dog. And I had a dog at the time named Lady O'Diddy's Rolimar Mim, (laughs) believe it or not. So I finally cooked up this wild story involving these two characters, and it wasn't until the last episode of, of the five that they were revealed to be dogs, you see. But that's when I took over the writing, but E. Jack Newman wrote a great many of the original, the first scripts, during the time when it was a 15-minute show, five a week.
5: During the week of March 12th, 1956, a story called The Clinton Matter aired. One of the featured actresses was radio legend Jeanette Nolan. <laughs> I'd like to see Mrs. Hawkins, please.
43: I'm Miss Hawkins.
36: Well, I'm an insurance investigator. My name's Johnny Dollar. Insurance? Yes.
43: Why do you want to talk to me?
36: Well, I'll be frank with you, Miss Hawkins. I came to Clinton to talk to Julian Osborne. Oh. You heard he died in the fire.
43: Yes, I heard. Tragic. I'm so thankful school wasn't in session today. Uh, Come in. Thank you.
36: I know this has been a pretty grueling day for you, for everyone in this town, Miss Hawkins, losing your school and all. I wouldn't call on you, except I feel it's important. I...
43: Excuse me, please. Sure. Hello? Who? Yes, Sheriff. Yes, he is right now. Yes. Good night.
36: There's just a couple of questions I'd like you to answer about Julian Osborne so I'm I can get... i afraid
43: I can't help you with anything, Mr. Dollar. What? You'll have to go now. Oh well,
36: look, now, wait a minute. If if you don't... Please. Only...
43: I don't want to be impolite, but I'm tired. Very tired.
36: Yeah, sure. That phone call wore you out.
43: Please. All right,
36: all right, I'll go, Miss Hawkins. But I think you should know why I came here.
43: I can assure you, Mr. Dollar, whatever the reason, I'm simply not interested. I
36: was sent here because Julian Osborne advised the insurance company that he suspected certain building irregularities had gone into the new school. Miss Hawkins, did Mr. Osborne ever mention anything like this to you?
43: No. Now, will you Do you have an idea to
36: whom he might have confided such information here in Clinton?
43: No. I rather think he was imagining things.
36: You noticed nothing irregular yourself?
43: No, of course not.
36: Mm-hmm. Would that call you just had from Sheriff Doherty cause you not to notice anything?
43: Is that all? I'm dreadfully tired.
36: Thanks for your time. Oh, Miss
43: Hawkins. Yes?
36: If Sheriff Doherty calls again, tell him I'm at the Northern Hotel. Northern Hotel.
43: Good night, Mr. Dollar.
36: Expense account item 4, $10.80. One long-distance call to New York. I got Al Davies out of bed and told him the fate of Julian Osborne. Davies requested me to stay on in Clinton to see the matter through. About 11 o'clock that night, I walked over to the site where the new school had once stood. A few firemen and policemen were still around, searching the ashes by the light of lanterns and spotlights. One of them told me the cause of the fire had not yet been determined. I started back to my hotel... Turning a corner by an alley, two men in dark clothes were holding a third man in a sheepskin. A fourth man was giving him the works.
4: Hey, just a minute here. Come on, let's get
36: out of here, boy. There. easy now, easy now. You need some help, mister.
33: Everybody needs help. But let me tell you who I am before you help me. Maybe you won't want to.
36: Easy, just take it easy now. I'm...
33: David Baines, you're from out of town, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I thought so. I architected that school that isn't anymore. Well, don't you understand, Samaritan? Don't you see that group of citizens who were working me over just now have kids? The kids could have been in there when the fire broke out. Your reason, uh, I'll be
15: I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid they feel I don't design especially good buildings. I took David Baines over to my hotel
36: room, still half unconscious from the beating. I sent the bellboy out for bandages, iodine, and something to take off the chill. While I was patching him up, I was thinking how he'd stood there and taken that beating. Stood there in sight of half a dozen policemen and firemen and let them do that to him. Eh, yeah, try a little more. Thanks.
29: Yeah.
36: Who are you? Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator. I came here about the school.
33: I see. <laughs> you want to beat me up, too? The company you're working for will be liable.
36: Want some more of this? Yeah.
33: What would you say your name is? Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, I'm in a curious position. I designed the school. I planned every feature of it but I had nothing to do with the building. You don't believe me?
36: I wish you'd explain that.
33: A week before they broke ground, a very important thing happened to me, Mr. Dollar. I went to Europe. I couldn't pass it up. It was a chance to study for another year under some men I'd admired all my life. (laughs) Consider it a scholarship, Mr. Baines. That's what he said. Who said? The man who paid my way to Europe. His name was Roy Vickery. So I went to Europe, and I studied. I came back, and my building was all built... Now it's burnt down. I'm a local boy who's made bad. Very bad. Who's Roy Vickery? The contractor who built it.
36: Oh, I better talk to him.
33: Yes, talk to him by all means. You represent a rich and powerful company, Mr. Dollar. But in Clinton, you're wasting your time. You'll learn no facts, no information, nothing helpful from anyone here, particularly Roy Vickery. You're in a tight, hot, mean little burg, Mr. Dollar.
36: All right, let's have it.
33: Was that building fired on purpose? I just told you. You won't find out anything in
5: this town. Between October of 1955 and November of 1956, 55 serials aired. Production was done in one day. Bob Bailey was paid $60 per 15-minute episode. Adjusted for inflation... A single week's work on dollar paid a little less than $3,000. Now,
25: here's our star to tell you about tomorrow's intriguing episode of this week's story. Tomorrow, In the
5: early 1980s, John Dunning interviewed Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta Goodwin. She spoke about her experiences with her father in the recording studio.
23: No, actually, I started going down to the studio with my father when I had my learner's permit. He went down Sunday. We lived in Pacific Palisades. It was about a 20-mile drive down to Hollywood, down to the big KNX studios on Hollywood Boulevard. Now they've been turned into uh, the CBS television studios when radio went out. But then I uh, would drive him down and stay with them the whole day while they got the show ready to go on the air during the week. I enjoyed being down there, and I think he was kind of hoping that the children's bug would bite. It just never quite took.
1: Many actors and actresses don't wish that for their children. It's kind of a reversal of what you normally hear.
23: Well, my grandmother and grandfather were both in the acting business, and so uh, I guess he was hoping that it would pass on to the next generation. He was born literally in a trunk was on the stage by the time he was a year and a half old, was out in front selling theater bills for $5 a week when he was around eight years old. So he came from a long line.
1: You say he was born literally in a trunk? How did that take Back place? On
23: stage in a trunk when uh, my grandma and grandpa were on the road. They played in Virginia City, Piper's Opera House. They were in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake. Uh-huh. So that was before he was born, but later they were still performing long after he was born. He left Chicago to come out here under contract for 20th Century Fox. And he worked for 20th Century Fox, I guess, for a couple of years. During the war years, he was there. Then he went on to the radio to do Let George Do It, which he played George Valentine.
1: He did that on Don Lee, wasn't it? Don Lee Network?
23: J. That was what it's, the call letters were, KHJ, and that was downtown. All the big radio stations were within about a four block area, downtown Hollywood. Everybody sort of ate at the same restaurant. It was a the group mixed together that one would work at one station. A lot of times, I have a couple of the old scripts here, and I see where old people like Virginia Gregg and Jack Crucian. They were on several shows, most of them as a matter of fact. People would just work the same show.
33: From Hollywood, it's time now for...
36: Johnny Deller. David Baines. Hi. How's it going this morning? I'm staying off the streets. I don't want to be beat up again. I'd advise you to do the same. I can't very well do that. The city of Clinton has filed claim for their school building. I have to make an investigation. You're bucking a
33: rough crowd, Mr. Dollar. Where do you meet them all? I intend to. I admire you, but I think you're foolish. Good luck. Just a minute. What?
36: Not only did a school building burn down yesterday, but a man died in that fire. If there was something wrong with it. I want to get to the bottom of it. I expect help from you too.
33: I'll stay here until I hear from you. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures
25: of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
36: Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to United Adjustment Bureau 418 West 61st Street, New York City. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Clinton matter. That's Clinton, Colorado. Expense account item 5, 80 cents, telegram, to Dodd and Company, Denver insurance brokers, who would handle the policies covering the new school building in Clinton. I requested them to forward copies of the policies. Item 6, 10 cents, one copy of the Clinton Times and the full story on the fire. It was believed by Fire Chief Hanley that the fire had started because of overheated boilers in the heating system.
15: Dollar, is it?
36: Yeah, That's right. I'm an insurance investigator.
15: Yep. Well, what can I do for you? Tell me about the fire yesterday. You sound like you're carrying a chip on your shoulder, Mr. Dollar. We
36: had word that building irregularities were suspected in that school, Chief. The word came from the janitor, Julian Osborne. He burned to death in that fire yesterday, and the building's gone now. You
15: get as head up as you want a boy. I got my own troubles. I'll tell you what we think, and you can take it, whether you like it or not. We think old Julian Osborne might have passed out, got drunk, or had a heart attack in that building. We think something like that happened, and the boilers kept right on going and built up the pressure. We think the boilers exploded, the fire started, and that was that. And why do you think the whole place went down? Because it spread so fast. Why did it spread? I didn't build the building. I just took care of the fire. You're going to have to change your attitude around here if you want anybody to cooperate, will you? All right, then
36: tell me this. Why, on a day when school wasn't in session, would those boilers be fired up at all? I don't know. Chief... Last night, I talked to Sheriff Doherty, trying to get information about Julian Osborne. He didn't know anything either. I also talked to Florey Hawkins, the school principal. She didn't know. Now you don't know anything. Who does?
15: I've done my job, boy. I've determined cause. You've also given me a chance to look at you,
36: which was about the only reason I came here. I'll get information elsewhere, Chief. There's some people in this town who want to talk and tell me things. You and your sheriff and whoever else is involved can't keep every mouth in this town shut. And I'll tell you like I told Miss Hawkins. I'm at the Northern Hotel, in case you
15: remember anything. I can't hear you, boy. Not one word.
36: Expense account item 7, $1.80. Breakfast in the coffee shop of my hotel for myself and David Baines, who still look badly battered from the beating he'd taken the night before.
33: You're taking a chance sitting here with me. Hope you realize that. Am I? I'm public enemy number one in this town. I'm the man who built the school that didn't stay up.
36: Look, Baines, I want you to tell me all about it. If you have any information or knowledge that would be helpful in this investigation, then you'd better give out with it right now.
33: What specifically do you want to know? First, the town. Do you know what this place is? It's a backyard, and only the rich kids can play here. Vickery, Hanley, Doherty, those are the rich kids, Mr. Dollar. The rest of us are, well... We live across the tracks.
36: Let's start with Vickery.
33: He's a builder. Not only here, all over these mountains. Grand Junction, Rifle, Mesa, all over. He's got a million dollars and a million angles. He's the one who sent me to Europe to study for a year after I completed my plans for the new building. Got me out of the way. Okay.
36: Fire Chief Hanley.
33: A friend of Vickery's. And any friend of Vickery's is going to get rich one way or another.
36: Sheriff Doherty.
33: He keeps the law orderly for Vickery. Very necessary. Very necessary. Okay, then.
36: The fire itself. Chief Hanley says the school boilers blew up and caused the fire.
33: There was no reason for those boilers to be fired up. No reason. If they were fired, they were fired to blow up. They had automatic shut-off equipment. What about Julian Osborne? You say he notified the broker in Denver that something was wrong with the building, and that's how you got here. I don't know. They might have fired it for money, too. I told you I was in Europe until they constructed it. I got back in Clinton four days ago. I went over to see my building... They used my outside drawing, Dollar. Wooden beams where I indicated steel girders. Only half the plumbing and heating system, other things. It looked like they'd made it up as they went along. Did you
36: talk to anybody about it?
33: Oh, sure. The contractor. Vickery. Vickery. He told me to keep my mouth shut and be a good boy.
36: Do you think he got you out of town during the construction so you wouldn't interfere?
33: I think so. I'm not important, but it was the easiest way. I understand Mr. Vickery's a little unpopular today. What? a delegation went out to his house to hang him or something.
36: Baines was partially right. A delegation had gone out to see Roy Vickery and his polished fine domain at the end of town. They were still there when I drove up in my rented car. Twenty or thirty irate citizens demanding an explanation for the lost school. Ten uniformed men from Sheriff Doherty's office formed a half-moon circle in front of the main entrance, their holsters unbuckled. The sheriff himself was directing the operation. All right, just a minute there. Hello, Sheriff. Johnny Dollar, I talked to you last night. Oh. Oh, yeah. Chief Hanley called me about you. The chief called you, and last night you called Flory Hawkins. That was nice. Keep the wires burning. The chief said you came over to see him. Used abusive language. Tried to cause trouble. The chief was mistaken. I wasn't trying to cause trouble, Sheriff. There's enough of that in this town. I was just trying to find out how the fire started yesterday.
15: The chief told you how it started. I didn't believe him. Now, what do you think of that? You'd better watch your step around here, Mr. Dollar. You seem to be looking for arguments all the time. Not at all, Sheriff. I'm misunderstood. We understand you all right. How's Mr. Vickery? He's all right, and
36: he's going to stay all right. I'm sure he will. But these people don't like their school burning down. It's expensive. Also, their kids could have been in it. I want to see Mr. Vickery
15: about that. He isn't seeing anyone, Mr. Dollar. And we aren't letting anybody in to see him. Really? Did any of you people hear that? Now, look here.
36: Hey, listen, folks, listen to me, will you? Look. Now, listen, I'm an insurance investigator. I'm worried about what happened to your school yesterday. Keep quiet. They tell me Mr. Vickery built that school. The architect who designed it said it wasn't built to his specifications. Now, I want to go in and ask Mr. Vickery about that. The sheriff here doesn't want me to do that. I'll get you for this, Dollar. Wait a minute. The sheriff just said, I'll get you for this. All right, hold it. Hold it, please, please. Now listen to me, listen. I'll put it to the sheriff again so you can all hear. Sheriff, I want to go in and see Mr. Vickery on business. Well? Go
5: ahead. Thank you. The Clinton Matters writer was E. Jack Newman. Jack Newman. You also did Johnny Dollar. Do you have
1: any recollections of that show? Now, that was pretty early, Johnny Dollar. I tell
21: you what, that's where I first met Edmund O'Brien. We became great friends. He was Johnny Dollar. Then there was another Johnny Dollar uh, named John Lund. And then there was another one named Bob Bailey. And maybe there was another one after that. But through the years, it was funny, every time... They got in the soup. I, uh, you know, uh, I forget who produced it. Jack Johnston. That's right. Right. And there was somebody else before him, maybe Norm Macdonald or somebody. But they would give me a ring because I knew the format so well. I could write it quickly and make it work. Lo and behold, I find out that I own more of Johnny Dollar than CBS does now. I own all the scripts I ever wrote for them. And we have discussed from time to time making a television series out of it. But that's all we've done is discuss
36: it. At a direction from Sheriff Doherty, the wedge of deputies opened up long enough for me to walk through the wrought iron gate and up the steps to the Vickery Mansion. A tall man in a white jacket answered the door and ushered me into a den that was stocked with good liquor and big leather chairs. Finally, a big man in a blue suit walked in. He had lots of good teeth, and there wasn't an ounce of fat on his 230 pounds.
10: Roy Vickery. It was quite an act with Sheriff Doherty just now. I watched you from upstairs. That's a good safe place to watch from, Mr. Vickery. Now that you're in, what can I do for you? Tell me everything you can about that school building. Mm Mm-hmm. Has the the city of Clinton made a claim yet? Yes, $200,000, building and contents. You got in town pretty fast. We heard there might be
36: something wrong with that building before the fire. Apparently
10: there was. Who told you a thing like that? Julian Osborne. He's dead now, you know. Oh? Well, two boilers explode and there's something wrong with the building. Is that the way you people figure? Yep. Well, so do we, and we couldn't find anything wrong. Who's we? Officially, we're the Civic Construction Department. We just had a meeting. We thought we ought to.
36: Yeah, yeah. I figure those people hanging around outside should be worrying. Well, they
10: don't worry me, and you don't worry me. A drunken janitor goes to sleep and lets the boilers kick up, and the joint blows apart and burns down. That's what we decided in the meeting. It was a a terrible accident. We'll have to use an old garage or something for a school, but then we'll get around to building another school with the insurance money we have coming. And that's that? That's that. Mr. Vickery, I'd like a copy of the specifications that went into that building. Sure, anything at all. There there you are. Okay? That'll do for now. Good. Now, you can get out of my house, Dollar. You smell smoke. There were 50
36: pages of specifications on the building materials used in the construction of that school. They looked all right. They also looked as though they could have been forgery. Expense account item eight, six dollars. One bottle of whiskey for David Baines and myself in my hotel room. Baines went over the specifications page by page. Uh, Okay, what do you think? These are my
33: specifications, more or less. This is what's on paper that went into the building. How about what actually went into it? Well, the little I saw, they cut corners everywhere. The outside was just a shell of this stuff. you sure? These are my notes. I can remember this much. Can you remember it in front of a notary?
36: I want a sworn statement.
33: I don't know. You what? Don't look at me that way. You can get my statement and possibly a half a dozen other statements. On paper, you'd have a case. Then what would you do? Go to the district attorney? We haven't got a district attorney. We got a county attorney who's elected for a four-year term. All right, I'll go to him. Vickery? Vickery?
36: Then I'll go to somebody else, the insurance commission.
33: you try to go any farther, they'll kill you, Dollar. Well,
36: let me worry about that. Now, will you make a statement?
33: Sorry. That kill me, too.
36: And that's the way matters stood in Clinton, Colorado, 24 hours after their new school building had burned down and a man had died in the flames. Everyone seemed to know it was all wrong, but no one was willing to do anything about it. Johnny Dollar.
10: Hello, Dollar. Roy Vickery. Wow. Did you go over those specifications?
36: Yes, I did. Very thoroughly. Well? I think they're fakes, Mr. Vickery. (laughs) I
10: didn't ask you your opinion, Dollar.
36: But you've got it.
10: Well, I'm sure you're entitled to it. Uh, When when are you leaving town? Not for a while. I was kind of hoping you'd be leaving like in about an hour. You'd make good connections then.
36: Sorry. I haven't really gotten around as much as I want to yet
10: saw me, I can tell you anything. Oh,
36: I'll get around to you
10: again. Get out of town, Dollar. Now.
36: Vickery, there are times when I don't hear good.
21: Drama without information is dull, and uh, information without drama is dull. I like to provoke an audience. I like to make them think, if I can. I like to think a little myself. I hate to be cliché.
5: Unfortunately, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, failed to attract any kind of sponsorship. By the summer of 1956, CBS radio executives were looking to cut costs.
1: The time that we were discussing earlier in the early 1950s when radio suddenly grew up, just as it was dying, do you foresee a future at all for radio drama? Because it has always impressed me that way, too, that right about 1953, radio really came of age and became a legitimate art form just as its demise came along.
21: Well, I saw it. Sadly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn, Uh, program after program were taken off the air, and suddenly there was, you know, there was no radio drama at all, Though there were a couple of attempts, but they didn't amount to anything. Finally, there was just nothing uh, left as far as radio drama went. It was a sad thing uh, because I, I do think it had finally grown up. And I hated to see it die. And because television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time, and particularly with on stage, radio really grew up and put on long pants. It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying.
5: The five episodes per week format continued until part five of The Silent Queen Matter aired on November 2nd, 1956.
25: Now, here's our star with a special announcement.
5: Yes, I think you'll be glad to
36: know that beginning Sunday, instead of five times a week, we'll be on the air only once a week but with a complete half-hour story. Remember, that's beginning this coming
5: Sunday. So join us, won't you? The show moved to Sunday afternoons. Bailey continued to voice Dollar for Jack Johnstone's production until it was decided to move remaining dramas to New York. Bailey and Johnstone refused to leave Hollywood.
8: Bob was a fine, fine fellow. No question about it. Uh, Incidentally, he wrote one script. He got an idea for... As I recall a Christmas story one time, and asked if he might write a script. Well, that was fine by me. So uh, it was a good one.
5: Their last show with the production was on Sunday, November 27, 1960. Bob Bailey's radio career was over.
23: Those were very good times, and like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in california they tried to move it back to new york and when they tried to convert to tv so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion and until other jobs opened up like the sponsor jobs there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill especially like my father had nothing to fall back on he'd been an actor all his life and by the time his radio show was over he was almost 50 he weighed about 150 pounds about five foot nine and a half and they looked at him on television and said you're not Johnny Dollar and he said but I am I did and they said no no we have to get a six-foot tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part it was sad it was a very sad time when TV just wiped it out
1: there was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers when they came in what I've read at least is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy and they said no 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 if you worked in radio now you've got your own way of doing things and this is tv and actually when you think that working in radio would give you a credential back in the early 50s it actually worked against you
16: presents Miss Fran Allison in
14: A Tale for the Nursery. Yeah, Hannan speaking. Hannon? That's what I said. Uh, this is Arthur
37: Wald at the bank.
14: Oh, Mr. Wald. What can I do for you, Mr. Wald? Uh,
37: you know Mrs. Baxter, don't you, Hannan?
14: The nursery school lady, Mr. Wald? The one who has apartments A and B on the ground floor of Building C?
37: That's right, Hannon. Uh, I don't know if you were aware of the fact or not, but the bank encouraged Mrs. Baxter to start her nursery school.
14: Oh, I didn't know, Mr. Wald.
37: Yes, Now, as long as we were backing a large apartment development, we thought it would be a fine idea to include this nursery school. Since many of our tenants are young, you see, we reasoned that they would have young children. Uh, We even went so far as to demand a far lower rental than we could have gotten elsewhere. So
14: what are you going to do now, Mr. Wall? Give her a rent boost?
37: Of course not, Hannon. We'd be happy to let Mrs. Baxter stay on at her present rate if, uh, well, if circumstances were different. You see... Uh, we've been talking over the situation here and have decided to take over the nursery school space for ourselves.
14: Uh, I don't get you, Mr. Wall. Well, look at it this way, Hannon. While the Hydra National Bank owns
37: Sky Towers, we don't have a single branch office within walking distance. Do you realize that?
14: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I've wondered about it. I bank at Atomic City myself. They have a branch just two blocks away. I'm and
37: not I... interested in your personal banking problems, Hannon.
14: Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Wall. I was only thinking...
37: It's all right, Hannah. Now, uh, I would like to get on with what I have for you to do. Uh, you see, we've decided to place a branch within Sky Towers itself. But the only suitable place is already occupied by Mrs. Baxter and her nursery school. Now, we have no right to kick her out, but uh, her lease does come up for renewal at the end of next month, and we are simply not going to renew. You understand?
14: Yeah. You're not kicking her out. You're just not keeping her in. Uh,
37: yes. Uh, you, you, You could put it that way. Now, what I want you to do is to inform Mrs. Baxter of the new situation. Be kind, but firm. I realize we may seem harsh to her, but it's a matter of the general good. After all, which is more important, a bank branch or a nursery school?
14: I don't know. Well, I do. But remember,
37: Hannon, when you give her the news, I want you to use tact. Mrs. Baxter is a rather frail little lady, and I wouldn't want her fainting or having hysterics, and so on. It would reflect badly on all of us if she did. Uh, do you think you can handle this?
14: I, I guess so, Mr. Wald.
37: Good. All right. now ring me back when you've done the job.
14: You've done the job. Dirty jobs they leave for Jim Hannon. Use tact, he says. I'll use tact. I'll tell the old bag to get out. That's what I'll do. And if Mr. Big Shot Wall don't like it, then he can just come here and give her the news himself. I'll fix him and his tact.
5: The American Broadcasting Company was never able to overtake NBC or CBS in ratings or revenue during the golden age of radio. But by 1964, the only network dramatic radio airing was part of vignettes on NBC's Monitor. That spring, ABC announced they were launching a new show. They hired former NBC writer Jack Wilson as story editor, and assigned the series to directors Warren Somerville and Frederick Bell. Edward Byron, creator of Mr. District Attorney, was brought in to advise. The new series would be a weekday half-hour anthology called Theater Five, in honor of its broadcast time in the New York market. Theater Five premiered on August 3rd with a play called Hit and Run.
28: And we can't really blame her, can we? It was a very fine cow. It... Mrs.
14: Baxter,
5: I have to see you. a month after its launch. 61 stations were carrying the transcribed series. ABC president Robert Pauley announced they were hiring a dedicated salesperson to pitch Theater 5 in the country's top markets.
28: To see if you say so, Mr. Mr.
5: The kinds of stories produced ran the gamut. Many plots were taken from contemporary newspapers. And a funny thing happened along the way. As young actors turned to television in the 1950s, radio child actors became extinct. In November of 1964, Broadcasting Magazine announced that ABC Radio was setting up a children's acting workshop in cooperation with the New York Professional Children's School. The plan was to teach kids how to perform for radio. Classes were 90 minutes long, and students would work with director Ted Bell. In January of 1965, ABC's radio department reported a 16% gross billings increase. That same month, actor Lee Bowman joined the team as an executive producer, and on February 22nd, Theater Five presented a tale for the nursery. Our
28: school to be the very finest, and such a small rent decrease would make such a big difference. Well, that
14: wasn't it, Mrs. Baxter. Uh,
28: no. Well, if we can't see our way to a reduction, I suppose we can't. We'll make the best of it, Mr. Hannon. Though it would have been lovely, I could have done so much. However, it was nice of you to come all the way over here to tell me yourself. The building's
14: not going to renew your lease, Mrs. Baxter.
28: The building's what?
14: We're not going to renew. You see, the bank needs this space. They want to put up a branch here. They asked me to tell you rather than just sending you a letter. They're sorry, but...
28: A new branch. But they can't. The children need this school.
14: They need it. Well, yeah, well, I guess the bank figures that it needs the branch.
28: And since they own the project... Oh, I know all of that, but we must have our school. Perhaps I talk to Mr. Wall himself. Oh,
14: no, 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 that wouldn't do any good. When they make up their minds downtown, they make up their minds. And anyway, if, if he felt like talking to you, why would he ask me to handle it?
28: Well, then I won't. But you may tell your Mr. Wald that we are not giving up our school. Indeed, the children and I expect to be here for some time.
14: Look, lady, it won't do you no good.
28: Any good, Mr. Hannon, any good. And there's no need to become unpleasant. Unpleasantness never helps. Just relay my message to Mr. Wald, please.
14: Yeah, sure, Mrs. Baxter. I'll tell him. I'll tell him, all right.
28: Children? Children? That's better. Now we can all hear. Before we go on with our story time, dears, I have something to ask you. How many of you love your nursery school? Put up your hands. All of you, that's wonderful, because I love you too. But children, we may not be here for very long this building is owned by a bank dears and the bank wants the space that our little nursery school has and so they want us all to leave you wouldn't like that would you darlings i don't think your mommies would like it either so here's what we're to do when we go home today i'll give each of us a note telling our mommies how we feel and asking our mommies to make big signs to carry up and down in front of the buildings. Do you know what? This is like magic, because when the nice people at the bank see the signs your mothers will all carry, they may decide to keep our school after all. Well, now to our story time. Remember the little boy named Jack? who bought some wonderful beans
5: with his mother. This episode featured Anne Francis, George Petrie, John Griggs, and Elliot Reed. I mean, you've got the script in front of you. How can you... It was wonderful. It was like stealing money, sure. I always
8: felt. And uh, who's against that? I loved radio, and it was, as I say, it was like a steal. Those days were just wonderful because the stress was not there.
37: Walt! Uh,
24: Yes, sir? Walt, you're an idiot. Sir? A complete and utter idiot.
15: Can you tell me what's going on outside this bank? Uh, There are pickets, sir. I noticed that myself. Now, just what do they think they're accomplishing
5: out there?
37: Have you talked to any of them? No, sir, I I didn't see any point.
5: Unfortunately, by the mid-1960s, network radio had undergone a transformation. The Air 5s half-hour time slot only allocated about 21 minutes for story time. The other nine minutes went to news, station identification, and local advertising, even as ABC announced a deal to produce the show in Spanish for Latin American countries. A cease in production was just around the corner. 256 total episodes were produced before Theatre 5's last new episode, Joey, went off the air on July 30, 1965. ABC continued to push the show in syndication to its affiliates, but found no buyers to back the production of new episodes. It would be ABC's last foray into dramatic radio. But it won't be ours.
17: Agency.
37: Very important, sweetheart. Write this down.
20: Oh, yes, Sam. I have pencil and paper ready.
4: Ingredients, colon.
20: Punctuation or ingredients, Sam? Both. Well, what is it, Sam?
41: A recipe. One pound of fennel.
31: Oh, that's liquid measure, Sam. You
41: put that in later.
31: What's that funnel?
41: Not funnel, fennel. It is not liquid. It grows at fairly Pines.
31: It's fairly what,
18: Sam? One root of
19: St. John's wort.
18: Whose wort? Not wort, wort. Oh,
4: wort. Wh- Don't interrupt. Some uh,
19: new size, a couple pounds ought to be enough One ounce of bats' wool One adder fork, that is not a utensil
4: One fillet of finny
19: snake Some lizard's legs One hemlock root, digged in the dark Directions
37: And the poisoned entrails throw
19: Toad that under cold stone, days and nights Has to be one.
37: If anyone drops in for trick-or-treat, Effie, leave them have it.
18: Oh, Sam, now I get it. Halloween. It's a witch's brew. (laughs) You're only fooling me. That's what you
19: think, sweetheart. Get out your cauldron, your poison pen, and your book of malefactions. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the fairly bright caper, or I should have stood in bed and ducked for apples. (laughs)
5: Next time on Breaking Walls, we celebrate All Hallows' Eve with Halloween-centric audio drama involving some of radio's funniest, scariest, and most absurd. The reading material used in today's episode was The Who is Johnny Dollar Matter by John C. Abbott On the Air by John Dunning Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, April 27th, September 14th, and November 30th, 1964, as well as January 4th, January 11th, and June 28th, 1965, Radio Daily, September 30th, 1949, and Sponsor Magazine, September 2nd, 1952. On the interview front, Spurvec was with Jack Johnstone, Al Lewis, Jeanette Nolan, and Elliot Reed. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Chuck Shaden interviewed Eve Arden, Parley Bear, Ken Carpenter, Norman Corwin, Gail Gordon, Jack Haley, Agnes Moorhead, Russell Thorson, and Willard Waterman. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Hans Conry, William N. Robeson, and William Spear were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran. For WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage wtic.org. While Eve Arden, Roberta Goodwin Bailey, and E. Jack Newman were with John Dunning for 71k and US. And Don Quinn was interviewed by Owen Cunningham in 1951. Selected music featured in today's episode was I Wonder Why by Dion and the Belmonts, Pyramid of the Sun by Les Baxter. Moon by George Winston, The Look of Love by Billy May and his orchestra, Young at Heart by Frank Sinatra, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Band, and Spooky by Dusty Springfield. Special thanks to our sponsors, Radio Drama Revival and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Find them both on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. There are three other gentlemen who deserve my thanks, whose high-quality audio recordings are available for purchase. Jerry Haintages, Ted Davenport, and Goodman Danielson. Goodman also has a Facebook group and corresponding podcast. It's called the Radio Show Collectors Group, and his most recent podcast features yours truly, Johnny Dollar. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. By the way, Spurback... The Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Riot, and Comedy will be having their next convention this coming November 7th through the 10th at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to spurredvac.com. Breaking Walls Episode 96 will visit with spooks, goblins, spirits, and even a skinflint. Last year's October episode was on The Art of the Mystery Show, while this year we'll focus specifically on Halloween-centered programming. The episode will be available beginning October 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcast, and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. If you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter. In the coming weeks... I'll be adding playlists of the full Golden Age episodes featured in each Breaking Walls show. These will be accessible for as little as a buck a month by going to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash the wallbreakers. So, until October 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 95. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.